a lot of people, I think, fall into this where they'll think, oh, I have this great idea and, and it might be technologically feasible to build it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people will want to use it. And so mm -hmm. I kind of went through a, a couple of different cycles of that, of, you know, building something that I thought was cool that would be useful for me, but wasn't really that useful to other people. Um, where, you know, it's easy to kind of get into this cycle of thinking this happened to me a lot anyway. And I've seen it happen to other people where you think, oh, if I just build this awesome thing, all these people will flock to it. But it's not really you really have to be thinking about how you'll get people you know, to use it or what's mm. the need for this. Yo, what's up? This is Boho Hobo, and we welcome you all back to Bindalism, a philosophy to a self-sufficient lifestyle. The purpose of Bindalism is to unlock authentic perspective as we create a community of like-minded individuals who are living a self-sufficient lifestyle. A self-sufficient lifestyle is one in which a human being is activating their self-awareness to curate an authentic life that keeps them sustained mentally, emotionally, and physically in their adventure towards self-fulfillment. Boho Hobo's mission is to support a community that fosters this culture. We will be interviewing a diverse group of people including artists, creatives, entrepreneurs, and independent thinkers to make this happen. Please join us in this journey as we explore the world and broaden our horizons with discoveries of new perspective. Thank you to everyone who is taking the time to stop by on your journey to give us a listen. We hope you enjoy, and as always, explore endlessly. All right, we're live. Very nice. <laughs> we're here on Bindalism, a philosophy to a self-sufficient lifestyle. John was recommended to us by Tom Dillon. He was on the podcast before in earlier episodes, um, back when we were doing this in the co-works. Uh, but we're here today at the Gear Factory, and um, Tom was telling me that John is very familiar with technology, and that's what you do for full-time work, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've just been interested in, uh, I mean, tech, it's a pretty broad term, but uh, especially just, you know, as a young kid in the 90s, I was really into computers, and uh, when my family got our first computer, I was on that all the time. So I was just into computers, and then that turned into wanting to... Um, start online businesses and uh then eventually i started making iphone apps and apple watch apps and so uh yeah wide variety of things related to tech but i'm also just interested in you know new technologies and mm. how they work and things like that he also said you're uh, into economics as well oh and yeah a little like bit finance and yeah stuff. we could talk a little about that too i guess but uh yeah mostly okay. mostly tech i think uh I don't know, kind of where they blend together. I know you're interested in like cryptocurrency and Bitcoin yeah. and stuff like that. Mm. So for sure, that that kind of stuff's really interesting to me. Are you a developer? I would say, yeah, I'm I'm a software developer. Um, Is that all freelance? Uh, no, I actually don't do any freelance. Um, so I have a number of, uh, I'm involved with a number of different businesses. Um, so uh the most software developer-y one is uh, I make iPhone apps and Apple mm. Watch apps. Um, and in that capacity, it's just me, um, you know, no employees, uh, just me making some apps that I come up with. I come up with the ideas, release them in the app store, see if people download them, you know, email mm. with the people who are using them and make them better over time. 
Uh, so that's not my main uh, my main thing right now, but it's something I'm working on growing, uh, and I've been doing that since about 2014 is when I first made my first mm. uh, iPhone app. And you're using Swift, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep, Swift. I, I never even learned Objective-C, which is what, you know, everybody made Mac and, and iPhone apps on up until about uh, 2014, I think, is when Swift was released. That's Apple's programming language. Oh, and okay. it's really well designed, I think. I mean, I've used a number of languages. And if anybody out there is interested in getting into software development, uh, Swift is, I think, very easy to get started compared to some other languages. Hmm. So just give me a rundown of the different types of languages. Oh, I mean, so. well, there are so many different ones. But Swift is... Um, is used for uh, I mean Apple came up with it um, but uh, it can be used for all kinds of things like even server-side stuff or any anything on you know iPhones Apple watches uh, any of the Apple products like a Mac um, Mac software and then you've got uh, for Android apps Java uh, Kotlin um, and so Java's been around forever but that's what um, is used for Android apps. And, uh, and then on the server side, like, you know, if you're making some website or, uh, or like an e-commerce site or anything, really any kind of website, um, there are a number of different technologies. So like PHP was a really big one back in like 2005, 2006 around there. I mean, plus mm -hmm. or minus five, 10 years, but, uh, that's that's what a lot of that's like what Facebook was kind of started on and and then you've got Ruby on Rails. I mean, oh, yeah. I don't know how interesting this is to your <laughs> audience, but uh, I got started in PHP and then uh, got into Ruby on Rails, which is what Twitter was originally built on. That that came out around like two thousand seven, two thousand six. Mm -hmm. I mean, it started getting big around then. It was out a little bit before that. Okay. Um, so uh, what what originally led you to wanting to develop apps? Uh, well, I originally got into website development um, and I, I say website like, I mean, people might be familiar with HTML and CSS and just, you know, what you see on a website. But then there's the whole idea of a, a web app. So like mm -hmm. uh, an, and, and that's what all websites seem to be these days. But it used to be very static where, you know, you'd have a web page and it would look a certain way and then you'd edit that if you needed to make it different. And then you then things like, um, you know. Facebook came along where, oh, now what you see on the page changes and it's it's a very dynamic experience for each person or even something as simple as an e-commerce site with a shopping cart and you add things to your shopping cart. Well, now there's more than just a static page you're looking at. There's other stuff happening behind the scenes. And that was always interesting to me because um, it's a way to make software that's accessible to the world, basically. Um, and so I was interested in that uh, both creatively and also just from a business standpoint, I wanted to have my own business of some kind. And I'm talking now, this was probably in like the mid two thousands. Wow. How old are you? 33. Okay. So you started getting into app development mid two thousands, uh, right? mostly, uh, websites, uh, web development. Okay. And so that was an interesting thing because I mean, I had a lot of ideas and, uh, a lot of people, I think, fall into this where they'll think, oh, I have this great idea and and it might be technologically feasible to build it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people will want to use it. And so mm -hmm. I kind of went through a, a couple of different cycles of that, of, you know, building something that I thought was cool that would be useful for me, but wasn't really that useful to other people um, where, you know, it's easy to kind of get into this cycle of thinking this happened to me a lot anyway. And I've seen it happen to other people where you think, oh, if I just build this awesome thing, all these people will flock to it. But it's not really you really have to be thinking about how you'll get people 
you know, to use it or what's mm. the need for this. So I built a number of different projects over the years um, with varying degrees of traction, uh, but I didn't really have a lot of success building just straight up web apps. And then I ended up getting into um, making a site. Uh, it was a site about, this was around 2010, a website about free samples. So mm. it sounds really kind like of music silly. samples? No, uh, mm. no, like free samples of shampoo oh, and like okay. consumer packaged goods. You know, a lot of these companies will give away um, free product samples. Mm -hmm. uh, and more so back then, um, I had a friend who was doing it that got me into it. Uh, but basically, um, I had this website. It was just a WordPress site. Um, and uh, someone would post the samples. I hired someone in the Philippines actually to post mm -hmm. the samples every day. Uh, so she'd go around in forums and things and find what new samples people were talking about, write up a post on the website with a picture. And then there was an email list um, through AWeber at first and then MailChimp. Uh, and so people would sign up for the email list. So they maybe it would look something like someone would Google uh, free samples by mail or, or free samples even and then find the website. A thing would pop up, say, hey, do you want new samples every day the person would put in an email address and then that person would get an email every day oh here are the five new samples of the day mm. um and so it sounds really kind of silly and, and like uh you know who would want that but that was a situation of kind of the opposite thing of what i was saying before where um it wasn't so much about the technology i mean it was just a simple wordpress site but there were all these people who wanted free samples um so they would sign up for it <laughs> Uh, and it, uh, that website made money off of, uh, Google ads, AdSense. So like you can put display ads on your site and Google handles all of that and then just sends a, a deposit mm. every month. Um, and then also, uh, performance marketing, like CPA affiliate marketing. Uh, so for example, that was, it, it was around during, it must've been about 2010 or 12, 2012 or 13 when Groupon was really big and living social. Uh, and they were spending a lot of money. So they would, you know, pay like a dollar fifty every time. Like I'd have a form on my site and every time someone put in an email address to sign up for Groupon, you know, they would the Groupon would pay like a dollar fifty. So I would just, you know, mm -hmm. get a lot of people to sign up. So so that was like kind of a So it was a like affiliate business. marketing kind of? Yeah. And that was the first website that I actually made that was like a business. Um, so and that was just straight web page, right? Not, no yeah. apps. And, it, it didn't have an app. I mean, it's like, well, because WordPress is technically in PHP. So it's kind of a web app like PHP that I mentioned earlier. But um, yeah, I mean, you can just think of it as a website. It's like a blog. It's just a blog that posts free samples. And then there was an email list component and it was pretty simple. Yeah, I feel like uh, a lot of times with apps, it's um, the more simple you can make it. Um, and user friendly it is, the easier it is to attract people. Um, and it is kind of interesting to see how there's the convergence of economics and like social sciences with like sec like human psychology paired with the technology and um, how those two things really uh, balance each other out. And uh, a lot of times it's like if you're an app developer, you're just solely focused on the, the technology and then if you're a social scientist, you don't think as much about technology, but if you could have that like way of building that communication between the two um, disciplines, I think that would be beautiful. Like we'd be more effective in making apps. That's what I'm trying to do actually with, I mean, there's so much going on, obviously, you know, with um, 
the way that these algorithm works, these, these algorithms work on social networks, um, and, you know, just surfacing things that they think you will like, keep you engaged and keep you interested, like YouTube's recommendation algorithm or Netflix's recommendation algorithm to just get you to keep watching and watching. And so I think about things that, you know, control people and build habits that way. And I've thought about, you know, how can I use that kind of thing for good, um, to help people live better lives. Uh, and so, I talked about the free sample site, but that's, you know, that was kind of what got me started. Uh, and uh, because of what you just said, I guess, you know, I could switch to kind of now I'm working on a number of different apps, but my main app is actually an app that helps people drink more water, uh, which sounds kind of silly. Like a lot of and people, what's it called? Uh, it's called P and C. P-E-E oh, okay. and S-E-E. So I should have given you the whole spiel first because normally I don't just tell people the name off the bat. I say, you know, hey, uh, do you ever feel like you don't drink enough water? Give them the why. Like yeah, why right? Would be okay, so yeah. So basically, uh, you know, oh, there are a lot of water reminder apps out there. Uh, and most of them, you have to tell it how much water you drink. But that's really annoying because like, are you drinking out of, you know, like a graduated cylinder? You know, how are you measuring how much water you're drinking and even if you know the size of your glass do you really wait till it's all the way empty and then refill it and um it's really you know maybe it's a hot day out maybe you go for a run maybe you go in a sauna uh just tracking how much water you drink doesn't seem like a really effective way to you know monitor how hydrated you are so my idea was uh instead of you know how about a water reminder app where you don't ever have to tell it how much water you drink and instead you just tap one button every time you go to the bathroom and if it's been a long time since you peed, it tells you to drink water. Uh, so that's why it's called P and C, like P and C how hydrated you are. But it's also a play on, you know, the grocery store. Remember the grocery store, P and C? Wait, wasn't that Price Chopper? Or was no, that there's two different a, companies? I, I think they might have both been owned by Penn Traffic, but it was like P mm -hmm. ampersand C. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like producers and consumers is what it stood for. Oh, okay. But it just kind of sound, it sounded like that. And it's also kind of a catchy name. Sometimes it sounds like, you know, it's a... Uh, some kind of weird fetish thing, I guess. But, you know, like some people are like, what is this app? But uh, there are a lot of people who uh, really like it. I, I released it in 2016. Um, you know, people all around the world are always emailing me saying, mm. hey, this really helped me or hey, can you make this change or, you know, making suggestions. And um, I really like that app because I feel like I'm making a meaningful difference in people's mm. lives and helping them build habits that, you know, will help them improve their health over time. Yeah, I definitely have to drink more water as well. Uh, so I'll probably download the app. Okay. Uh, can I get it on Apple? Like it's it's only, I, yeah. So I don't have an Android version, but it's um, a, an iPhone app and okay. an Apple Watch app. And um, I'm really interested in going more after uh, Apple Watch users with this app because uh, right now about 30% of the regular users of the app <laughs> use it on an Apple Watch. And it's really easy. I mean, you just tap in here and then you just, you know, hit a log P button when you're walking mm -hmm. to the bathroom. It takes like two seconds. Um, and so I found that people really like it as an Apple Watch app. There are about a little over, I think, 100 million Apple Watches out there. So even if I find, you know, 100,000 people, yeah. that's a tiny percentage of those. I mean, that if there are, there probably are, you know, at least a couple hundred thousand people out there that would mm -hmm. want to use this app uh, who feel like they don't drink enough water. So um, I'll log it every time I go to the bathroom then? Yeah, and yeah, then, you just um, tap a button. Okay, so mm -hmm. like the, the rate, I guess, of me going to the bathroom is determining like uh, how much water I should drink? Not so, even. It doesn't even make a recommendation of how much water you should drink. It just says, hey, it's been, you know, three hours since you peed. Oh, okay. Maybe you want to think about drinking some water. Mm. And it does make you more aware of, you know, like just your habits and 
in times when you think, oh, wow, it's been, you know, like five hours since I peed. I didn't even think about it. Hmm. Um, So uh, there are people also who use it for medical reasons um, to just track uh, information to give to a doctor. And so I'm Hmm. probably going to make a separate mode for the app that's not water reminder focused. That's just for those people because that's a growing market. And I hear from a lot of people who use it for that. But uh, I really want to make a lot of changes to the app this year and and next year to uh, just make it a lot better than right. it is now because it's been out since 2016 and there are people who have used it every single day it keeps track of your streak uh and so there are people who have used it every single day for you know three four years almost uh and so um it's so you're, somewhat you're, addictive mm-hmm. now i want to make it even better so your uh customers they're uh once you got them onto it back like four years ago uh they've been like pretty disciplined with it some people yeah i mean it's it's not for everyone Uh, Mm -hmm. obviously a lot of people you know drink enough water anyway or or think they do um and then other people you know think it's it's too much uh reliance on like your phone you know people Mm -hmm. don't people are like i don't want to be you know doing that on my phone every time i go to the bathroom like that seems crazy but there are other people who love it um you know so it's obviously not for everyone it's not like Mm -hmm. i think this is an app everyone should have i just made it for the people who appreciate the idea and Mm -hmm. and want to use it um and it seems like there are quite a few of those people out there and um just getting into the science of it like how many times should on average should you be peeing oh i don't i don't even know i mean (laughs) it's just a it's just um you know, the idea of it is just that three hours seems like a pretty reasonable time if you haven't peed for a while. And then it also has quiet hours. So at night, uh, it doesn't send any reminders while you're sleeping. Uh, But, you know, I think there are ways to improve it. You can adjust that three hour setting to, you know, five hours or I have it set Mm. to two hours. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to get more into the science of it. um, And and the science of hydration, you know, include things like that in the app. But, Mm. uh, you know, for now, it's like basically this simple water reminder uh, with some other features too in it. And I think that's the key too. Um, you made it simple. Uh, use a factor that was actually more able to be measured by the consumer themselves, as yeah. opposed to having like a, like a health tracker of some sort. Because how would you really do that? You know, like right. uh, I, I'm just thinking because a lot of uh, the big tech companies are trying to find ways of tracking our health mm-hmm. uh whether it's like our blood pressure heart rate and i just from the brief amount of research i've done it seems like they're having a lot of issues with like either fraud or like people um abusing the health tracker to get like reward points oh, like or the something insurance companies that yeah. will give you a fitbit and then people put it on their dogs or something so there's like yeah. fraud there's also just inaccuracy in it um the health tracker not working and then um just people not using it because mm-hmm. they just forget about it. Like if they go on a run, they're like, I don't want to bring my phone. I don't want to bring this thing with me kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I don't know. I thought it was pretty uh, ingenious. I try the way to keep it simple. It. Yeah. And I mean, it's um, it's uh, you mentioned people forgetting about it. And that's something I'm trying to always improve is just how does the experience go where someone just forgot about it for a minute and then, you know, okay, I forgot to log one. And then it's kind of like in, in the current state of the app, it's kind of like, a, well, now I should just give up because it's all, <laughs> all the data is messed up. But uh, so I'm working on trying to improve that. But that's just, you know, that's just one app. And uh, the way um, the way I'm approaching it is uh, it's a free app. There are no ads in the app. Uh, I really 
don't ever really want to make apps that have ads because mm -hmm. I used to do, I mean, I used to have that website that had ads, uh, display ads and, um, I just don't like the experience for an app. And it's also just with all the tracking. I mean, now some of these companies are starting to cut back on the tracking, like Apple and Google are taking more of a stance to cut back on cross-site tracking. But um, I just don't really like it. So is that like targeted ads? Yeah, like when you're, you, you know, like um, like if you're shopping for something on a like a, an e-commerce site and then you see an ad for that product on Instagram, it's like, mm -hmm. OK, that's not a coincidence. And no, your phone's not listening to you. It's just like a, it's called a cookie, you know, that. Right. Right. that tracks you uh but um instead it's a subscription model so basically uh 95 of people use the app for free and don't pay anything and then about five or six percent uh pay for a subscription um it's a pretty cheap subscription uh that um gives some extra features so basically that's mm -hmm. my approach with it you know i want to try to just um help as many people as possible stay hydrated uh with the app and so a lot of people use it for free and then some people pay for it either mm -hmm. because they want the extra features or they just want to support development of the app so as in terms of like uh retaining your customers to want to keep using it would you say that's the best way uh to approach the uh for subscription revenue structure uh i thought it made sense because there are people who get a lot of long-term value out of the app um so these people you know people are using it for two three years without ever missing a day i figured oh, wow. <laughs> you know if they if they really get that much use out of it that they probably wouldn't mind i forget i think a year is like 12 or 13 dollars a year you know it's like a dollar a month so you know hopefully they're okay with paying that um you know some people are really not into the whole idea of subscription apps and want uh you know a a paid up front app. So there is an option you can get a lifetime subscription for a one time fee. Mm -hmm. uh, but the app itself is free up front. Um, and then some people I think would want ads just to not just to be able to get all the features. But I just don't, I don't like that idea mm -hmm. of having ads in the app. So because then don't you have to have like uh, your own personal time taken up to with um, trying to stay up to date with those ads? Oh, uh, I mean, you can use a service, that... you know, you can oh, use okay. like, um, like, uh, like I was saying earlier, Google AdSense, which is now just Google ads, I think. Uh, but you can basically have, you know, Google or someone else sell that space for you to oh, the okay. highest bidder or based on, you know, someone's previous behavior, things like that. Um, hmm. So I'm just, I'm not as into that for the, uh, for the monetization of apps, but um, you know, that's, uh, that's really one area I'm really trying to keep growing is the, is PNC, the number mm -hmm. one, number one app. So that would be your most successful app that you've made all together? Uh, it doesn't have the most downloads, but I think it has the most diehard users. And I think it has the most mm -hmm. potential to, uh, where I could grow it a lot more. Um, I haven't really put a lot of time into it. Uh, I just kind of work on it here and it's there. It's funny how... <laughs> The side project end up well, I mean, I guess becoming in, the in thing. spurts. In spurts, I've put okay. time into it, but like I feel bad because I've been I've been really stuck on this major rewrite of this section. That basically, you know, if you if you're using, let's say you're using the app for a year and then you lose your phone and you need to get a new phone, uh, you want all your data to come back. So that's right. oh, hard okay. to build behind the scenes uh, in a really robust way. Uh, so I originally built all that maybe in like 2017 and then I'm in the process now of scrapping all my old code from 2017 and rebuilding it. And it's really, um, frustrating 
it's hard to keep the momentum of working on it every day because in a situation like that, you know, backing up someone's data, well, there are all kinds of errors that can happen. So mm -hmm. obviously the successful way that it would work is, okay, you log a P, it backs it up to the, you know, privately on the internet so that it can be restored if you get a new phone. But what if you're... Uh, internet connections down? What if you're out of iCloud space? You know, sometimes people are on restricted devices where they're, uh, it's like a company phone and the companies put certain restrictions on it. So it can't use that backup system. So uh, it's, it gets really frustrating to test that because you have to test all the ways that it can fail. But the reason I like, it's also the same reason I like working on this stuff because there's always a challenge and it's always very logical and it's like, okay, this, these are the different things that can happen and I'm going to try to figure them all out. Oops. I don't know. What so I like, um, I really like working on PNC uh, and, and really iPhone apps in general and Apple watch apps because uh, it's a really good creative outlet. You know, there's the design totally. aspect um, of, you know, how it actually looks, how people interact with it. Uh, but then there's also, um, you know, a lot of the, I just kind of think of it as building like a big machine, almost like it's mm -hmm. a mechanical machine because, you know, you do one thing here, it does another thing here, it's predictable, but then, you know, sometimes there are little problems and you have to kind of build a new machine to, to fix that. Um, and you can always go back and like take the whole machine apart and rebuild it in a more efficient mm -hmm. way. So, um, that part's really fun. And then there's always just a challenge, you know, something where it's like a way to kind of exercise my brain and always be learning something. Um, and then also even like you were talking about before, kind of the behavioral side of it. Well, how can I make this into an app that's helping people form good habits, but without, you know, having side effect, like bad incentives or bad mm -hmm. habits that I'm causing someone to, to form. So, um, so anyway, it's, I, I really just like that whole aspect of it. And then also, since I'm just working on it alone, it's the kind of thing where I don't really ever want either employees or, you know, someone else working on it because mm -hmm. I like that aspect of it where it's just, you know, it's almost like, okay, I can just, you know, create this one thing and bring it into the world, like get it out of my head into mm -hmm. the world and then see how people use it and make changes based on that. So in terms of um, with your app development process right now, um, are you doing this full time? Like, are you full full time um, entrepreneur where you're able to get passive income from PNC and still work on your products for other? Yeah, I'd say projects? it's not passive income. I mean, it's I definitely so I don't have like a like a full time job. Uh, I have a number of different projects, hmm. um, and that's kind of been. Over the years, I've tried to really do that. I had, um, well, with uh, with PNC, I'm really trying to build that up because I think it has a lot of potential. But then I have other apps too. So um, there is uh, another app that actually has more downloads, especially in Germany and uh, mainland China. It has a lot of downloads, more than the US, um, is an app. It's a very simple app. Uh, for Apple Watch that just shows uh, the iPhone battery percentage on the screen mm -hmm. of an Apple Watch where it's uh, it sounds kind of obvious or like it should just be built in. Uh, but what I found, you know, there are a lot of people, for example, who will be at work somewhere and have a phone, you know, somewhere else, but have an Apple Watch on and then mm -hmm. say, oh, my phone's getting low. I better go plug it in or, you know, it's just a kind of a way you can keep an eye on it throughout the day. And I thought it was just an interesting idea. Uh, so I built it and released it. But then it turned out um, that 
it's an interesting problem to solve of just syncing that between, you know, getting the actual percentage from the phone to the watch on a regular basis to where it's useful. Um, and so I released it, I think, uh, you have a to go into the app to be able to see. Oh, uh, no, it's just right on the watch face. Oh, nice. It just shows it right on the watch face. You have it now? Yeah. So like, okay. see, it shows my phone is at 42%. And then does 42. it have the battery for the actual uh, uh Yeah, it does on itself. the same little thing. So that's built okay. in normally, but you can't normally get them both on one little display mm -hmm. like that. So 78 is the percentage. Is the watch, okay. yeah. Um, so uh, that one is a paid up front app. So it costs, I don't know, like five bucks, I think. Uh, and so people just pay for mm -hmm. it up front. And that's, you know, the revenue model of that one. So it might only get, you know, 10 downloads a day, but people are paying up front for it. Mm, right, right. Um, and it varies a lot. And sometimes I'll make it free for a couple of days and then blogs will cover it and say, oh, look mm. at this app. It's normally $5 and now it's free. So that gets a lot of press about it. But um, then I get, end up with a bunch of free downloads of people who probably just bought it for um, you know, or they just downloaded it because it was free and not necessarily because they were seeking it out and would use it. But um, mm. that's a, the, one of the other things I like about the app development is just the marketing side of it, you know, like something like that. I think I did it accidentally once where I had something at a price and then lowered the price to zero. And all of a sudden I got all these downloads and I realized, oh, there are all these blogs that just cover paid apps that went free. Um, so it's kind of a uh, it's kind of like a, a fun loophole I found, mm -hmm. I guess. I don't know if it's a loophole really, but it's a way to get some some downloads and kind of build the momentum. And then do you have like an email list associated with the apps? So like I don't sign in. No, and I, I was really big into email lists um, a long time ago, you know, when I did uh, when I first started the free sample site. But, um, you know, I really uh, want to maintain privacy with these apps. Um, they're all on iPhone and Apple Watch and and Apple platforms. And I know, you know, they take more of a privacy stance. Uh, so I want to be really careful about that because I know that the users don't, you know, for example, uh, if you use PNC, all your P data is backed up, but only to your iCloud account, like your own personal iCloud account in an encrypted way that I can't even access as the developer of the app. I can't see anyone else's P data. It's just backed up in your own iCloud storage and restored from there. Um, and so that's the kind of privacy thing where, you know, I could easily put that all on a server somewhere, but, uh, I don't. Hmm. One thing that was interesting about was how you got into like business altogether. Yeah. Like, what started that journey and like the reason why, uh, you got motivated to want to kind of go the entrepreneur route. So I, um, originally, uh, I was interested. I, I always think I was like interested in having my own business. Um, even from like in, in high school, I worked at Delta Sonic for a little while, um, doing the interiors of cars. Uh, and I just thought, you know, I could do a much better job if I was just doing this on my own, you mm -hmm. know, cause it's like, you get like 15 minutes to do an interior and it's like, you get some smoker's car where you have to wash the windows, windows like five times before it actually looks good. And I just wanted to, you know go from like a really dirty car to making a car super clean, like even if it took, you know, four or five hours. Um, so I started just like a small car detailing business. Um, but I think that was kind of the first time where I really uh, 
saw. And this was like, back in high school? Yeah. And it wasn't really that great of a business because I was mm-hmm. doing all the work, but it was just kind of like, oh, I would rather, you know, have more control over it and do my own thing, mm-hmm. even though it's like, you know, there are downsides. Obviously, I had to like find and maintain clients and things, but um, but just the idea of, you know, working for myself, I was always really into that. Um, and then I originally thought I wanted to be an engineer because I really liked physics in high school. Um, and so at first I was learning, I I started studying mechanical engineering and, uh, I quickly thought, um, I'm just going to end up with a job, you know, working in like at some big company all day. Mm -hmm. Um, I was interested in it, but I thought I don't really want to follow this path and get a formal education in mechanical engineering. I'd rather, you know, start some kind of business. So then I, I, um, Really, I went to school for business and then learned software on the side. Um, I learned, uh, I started learning PHP and then Ruby on Rails, and I just started trying mm. different things that way. Was that during the, the mid two thousands? Yeah, yeah. Or so, okay. yep, yeah, mid late late two thousands. Um, and so, so you uh, didn't start learning um, app development until college then, or not app development, just coding in general. Yeah, but I didn't okay. learn it really. Uh, I really just learned it online. I mean, there's so many good resources. Now there yeah. are even so many more. I mean, now it's it's amazing what there is. But even in 2006, 2007. Now you could just honestly use the internet to learn. You don't even yeah. have to go to school. Well, right. And that's what I'm, I mean, even back then, that's what I was, I mean, I wasn't really learning as much in, in any formal environment. It was, mm. you know, I'd get like lynda.com videos, which I think are still around today. Like, I think you can get them through a library now for free, but um you know, there are a lot of good courses now. Um, there were still then, though, just to at least get started. And I realized, wow, I can actually do this. I remember as a kid, too, uh, one time I really wanted to understand programming. You know, I thought, oh, well, people write some code or write something and then it makes, you know, this program on the computer. But I never was around anyone who could really explain it to me. So it wasn't really until the mid 2000s that I actually started to learn and, and it clicked. But uh, it was really more, it was kind of the combination of, you know, understanding how the code works and then, um, and then, you know, also thinking about on the business side of things, you know, kind of bringing those together uh, because that's really what it would take to have, you know, something uh, successful enough to make money and and really be a sustainable thing. And I think that's Mm -hmm. what I'm kind of getting into with the apps. But one of the things, I mean, more recently, I'll sometimes I'll release an app that I don't think it really even has a market and it's just like a cool thing I built. Um, I just read this book called breath or breathe by James Nestor. Have you heard of it? It Mm -hmm. came out last year. I, I highly recommend it. Um, it sounds stupid. It's a book about breathing, Mm -hmm. but, uh, it's actually really interesting. Uh, a lot of it's about how people over time have shifted more to breathing through their mouths rather than through their noses. Mm. Actually, my friend was talking about this. It's Um, really interesting. mm -hmm. He's got a lot of good sources and, uh, and, um, just different different things he's drawn on in that book um, to kind of make his case about, you know, breathing through your nose. But I was interested in that and how it corresponded to my heart rate. So I made this app where you put in a threshold like 100 BPM. And then anytime your heart rate goes above that, your Apple Watch dings at like a certain and with a certain vibration, too. And then when it goes back below 100, it it, you know, does a different vibration and, and a different sound. Um, and you can set that, you know, 
to 180, you know, 150 mm. if you're working out or something, whatever you want. But the idea is just to help make you more aware of when you might be getting stressed out or something like that. Um, and then, you know, bring your attention to that so you can, you know, do some breathing exercises or meditate a little bit and bring the heart rate back down. But that one I released and it's a paid up front app for the Apple watch only, but like, I don't really expect people to download that in droves. I just mm. thought it was cool. So I released it. And, uh, what's the response for it? Uh, or... I mean, not many people have found it. I mm. haven't really marketed it. It at seems all. like a cool idea. <laughs> Yeah, like, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. It was also something where it runs in the background. So basically, like if I open up the app, it's called Beat Watcher, like your heartbeat. Uh, so I have it set to 100 and then I can put it into this background mode and I leave the app and it's still running. Okay. And, and in order to do that, it starts recording a workout on the Apple Watch, which is like uh, if you were recording a run or something or snowboarding. Mm. Uh, and it can allow the app to keep running in the background. And, like in you know, all trails, like you're recording yeah, the hike. As yeah, you're and, it, and, and only uh, apps that are recording a workout can actually run in the background and like continue oh, to okay. give sounds and, and vibration feedback. So it's mm -hmm. a little bit of a hack because it's like, well, I'm not really working out right now. And then when you stop it, it just discards the workout. So it doesn't save it like, oh, you worked out for mm -hmm. 10 seconds or whatever. But uh but that was sort of a workaround I came up with and I was just using it on my own. And I thought, I'm just going to submit this to the app store and see if it gets approved because mm -hmm. I really didn't think it would. But it did. So now it's out there and anyone can try it, mm -hmm. download it. So compared to like that one in PNC, like yeah. PNC is getting way more traction. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, so it's a... what's like the difference as far as like um, what is an app that would be more attractive to getting people in on board as opposed to that one? Because they both serve very useful functions um and they're simple you know yeah that one how, is, how come like that one isn't getting the the amount of traction that pnc is i think? mean it, it could i guess it's just super simple and it's just a very simple tool where pnc i think there's like a whole story to it right it's mm -hmm. like okay hey you're not drinking enough water or you think you're not drinking enough water and you want to drink more water it's almost like this journey right you're like want you want to go on and there's almost this whole little storyline of the app and i'm trying to make it more that mm -hmm. way like a traditional you know story arc um and you could put like creative design into the app itself too. yeah i mean like even uh there are, there are all these different little um kind of habit building things so every after like three days five days seven days like even when you first download the app there's a whole little intro sequence and i try to put funny things in there you know mm -hmm. like like pee jokes and stuff and uh and um it uh i think it helps you know it helps people if they just laugh a little bit you know as they're going through it it gives them this good feeling of oh i think i want to keep using this and so mm -hmm. it really has that long-term value of like using this app every day for you know some people use it for years where this other one there's not really much of a story to it. it's kind of like oh this is a useful utility maybe um you know there's another app i made my first app that i thought was going to be uh a really i thought there would be more people who would want it but i kind of haven't touched it for over a year uh, but it's a simple app where you know every time you take a photo it saves the location with it mm, i didn't know that okay well a lot <laughs> of the, if you haven't changed the settings on your phone usually um that's what it does mm. and so uh around here there are a lot of good um like 
medicinal mushrooms and, and things like uh, chaga and, and reishi mushrooms around. Around in this area? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I do not. So um, They're just naturally growing? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, people pay a lot of money for these online uh, or wherever. Yeah. Um, and they, you know, supposedly have a lot of really good uh, benefits health-wise. Um, and uh, a friend of mine um, would you know, we'd go out in the woods and look for these. Uh, and sometimes we'd find them when they were too small and think, oh, I want to go back here later. Mm. So I was trying to think, you know, okay, this is a spot in the middle of the woods. How can I get back to the same spot? And, you know, I guess you can like make a pin or something on the map. But my idea was, well, what if I just take a picture of it and I've got the picture and the picture has location data in it. Mm. And I made an app where it's like a compass. So you just pull out your phone and it's like, oh, walk, you know, 100 feet that way. And, um, you know, that's where it was. And it shows it points like a compass to like where the photo was taken anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. So you can like walk back to it and it can be used for like if you find a good camping spot or hiking spot, you know, in the middle of the woods or uh, people use it to find a car like in the parking lot. Like you take a picture of your car in a big parking lot and you can get back to it. But uh, that was a really simple. That was my first app. And I kind of thought at the time, oh, there are going to be so many people who want this. But I, it was kind of that same problem of. Well, I thought I had a good idea, but just building it isn't enough to, you know, find an audience. So, so that uh, ended up fizzling out then. Well, it's still in the App Store. I just haven't worked on it because it doesn't have the same kind of audience as PNC or Juice Watch is the other one that um, the one for the battery level. Oh, okay. Uh, that one, I think. I mean, that has by far the most downloads. Um, and but I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just not as. It, it's not as maybe for some people, I mean, for a lot of people, it's probably more useful than PNC, but I just think PNC is kind of a, a unique thing that I want to keep hmm. building on. I have a lot of ideas for it uh, to kind of. Do you think it may, might have to do with like the, the human element to it? Definitely. Story, yeah. Narrative. I look at it. Yeah. And I look at it as a way that I can help a lot of people in the world, you know, hmm. like help people be more hydrated because if people are more hydrated, uh, then, you know, maybe that helps them in other aspects of their lives or helps their health. Uh, mm-hmm. I also hear from people who have certain medical conditions, uh, like bladder and kidney conditions where they'll use the app to monitor the symptoms. And then, you know, that can be a way to, that they, you know, make their lives better. So mm-hmm. I kind of look at it as this foundational fundamental thing. If I can help a lot of people be more hydrated, then hopefully I can have a really positive impact on the world that way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so I'm trying to just keep growing it. Yeah, definitely. And um, it sounds like something that would be really useful in the hospitals. You said like uh, some medical practices were well, adopting certain, it. Certain, I think I've heard from some people who have said their doctors have actually recommended it to them as a way to just track their, their pee. And, and then mm-hmm. you can export a CSV of it to give to your doctor, like a, like a file that has all the data. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I haven't really tapped into that community too much. I also want to be really careful to not have a, an app that is giving medical advice. Um, you know, it's not oh, okay. designed to give people medical advice, really. It's just saying, hey, it's been a while since you peed. Maybe you should consider drinking water, right. you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I, I do like that direction of at least being a way for people to keep track in a really simple way. And I'm trying to, you know, build that out more. Yeah. Well, I work as an RN um, over at Helio in outpatient clinic, um, and I have close ties with the medical facilities. So if you're interested, maybe yeah. we could try to push it in that direction. Sure. I mean, get yeah. people on board with I it. I always like people telling 
telling people about it and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I it's always a tough call though too because and this is something I find with people who have ideas and are trying to build them out is that you know the way I think of it now, like I think of it as, oh, it's a really terrible app. Like it's mm. really not that good. Uh, there, are, there. I, I know about all these bugs and problems with it. Yeah. Um, and even the intro, like when you first download it, you know, I have ideas to improve that whole introduction. But then I have to remember that, you know, there are people downloading this every day, getting hooked on it, you know, really helping mm. to improve their lives. So even though it's not in this state that I have it in my head where I want it to be, it still makes sense to try to get more people on it as it is now. I shouldn't try to wait until it's, you know, perfect and super yeah. polished because there was a time that it didn't have a little intro at the beginning and it kind of just threw people into it and they still kind of figured it out. So um, mm -hmm. I'd really, you know, it's it's tough sometimes to decide, should I really tell people about it and try to get more people on it? Or should I, you know, just focus on it mm -hmm. more, build up, build it more and then tell more people about it? But I think it's like an ongoing thing. Yeah, definitely. And there's going to be constant updates, like constant yeah. new devices that you have to like integrate it with. Yep. So it's just like, yeah, it's a process, definitely. Yeah. But it is like a balance of I thought that was a cool like uh, concept is like you're trying to build the internals of it, like the app itself, while also the marketing side, which is like the external. Yeah. So it's this constant like, all right, I got to like buckle down and go to the office and work on this, but also be out in the field and like get people on board. And it's yeah. like, it's a lot for one person to handle, but you're doing it. So. The other thing that I really like about, you know, the development part of it is, um, well, there's uh, really, you can build mechanisms into the app that encourage the best users to share it with other people. So for example, you know, sometimes an app will pop up and say, hey, what star rating would you give this app? You know what I mean? It'll pop up and say, hey, rate this in the app store. And it has the oh, stars yeah, yeah. right there for you to rate it. I always it. get annoyed by that. Right. Well, so you do because whoever developed the app is just popping that up there, right? Oh, okay. I only show that to people if it's someone who's used the app every day for like five weeks mm. and then it pops up. So hopefully those people are like the five star people, you know? Yeah, they give you better ratings right, too. Right, right. So, I mean, there are things like that you can do um, to help with that that are more like integrated with the app. There's a mm. really great app I use for skiing and snowboarding. Well, snowboarding, I only snowboard, but uh, Slopes it's called. And that's made by one guy, Curtis, uh, who... Um, that app has a really good mechanism where there's a premium subscription. So like I pay, you know, I don't know, 20 bucks a year for all the features of the app. Hmm. But then if I go snowboarding, uh, let's say you have the app and, and don't um, have a premium subscription. If he sends a survey by email after you use the app, like, oh, would you recommend this app to a friend? And if you say, I don't know, like 10 out of 10 or nine out of 10, I don't know where the cutoff is, but if you rate it highly, then he sends a pass, he'll send me a pass oh, wow. that I can mm -hmm. give to you to use premium for a day. So now mm -hmm. it's like, well, he's taking the existing paying users and incentivizing them with something of value that doesn't really cost him any extra money, but it's mm -hmm. a to you, it might be extremely valuable to get this one day free. So there are mechanisms like that that, you know, you can really build it. And that that single feature requires a lot of um, kind of complex stuff with, uh, you know, tracking the different users and, and building this email component and creating these passes for premium. And like that's a it's a pretty complicated thing technically, but the rewards are probably mm. huge because he's he's getting his best users to refer other users. Right. And so I'm always looking for those types of opportunities. Mm -hmm. It's building that width. 
I think, um, of trying to spread the, because I always think of it as like the bigger you can build the network, let's say only 10% of those people out of the entire network are going to actually be like buying stuff mm -hmm. on the actual app. Like Instagram, for instance, there's mm -hmm. like only 10% actually pay Instagram, let's say, to post an ad. Mm -hmm. So the bigger you can build out that network, the higher potential there is. Right. It's for a big 10 feedback loop yeah. that keeps mm -hmm. keeps feeding into it. So it's, yeah. it's kind of like finance too. Like the bigger you can build that, um, the the wealth of capital that you have, um, it's still only ten percent. But that ten percent of that wealth of capital is going to be more if you have millions of dollars as opposed to twenty dollars. So I don't know. I, yeah, just that network effect is yeah. interesting to yeah, think about. Certainly. Um, and um, outside yeah. of app development, you said you snowboard as well. Um, yeah. Are there other hobbies that you're interested in? Honestly, um, I kind of think of the app development. Well, I, I don't really think of what I do as work, uh, which I think is a good thing, I guess. Um, like all the different projects. I have a lot of different projects. I I feel like I never get bored because like uh, there's always stuff to work on. I haven't even talked about, you know, everything that I'm I'm working on. But, um, you know, I I kind of look. I can always switch projects and kind of get a new creative outlet that way. And and so it never really feels like work. So I don't mm. really. I almost think of it as like work and hobby combined. It's like Definitely. something I enjoy doing with you know creativity. But yeah, I just like being in nature, you know, going for hikes, going for mm -hmm. long walks, um, going snowboarding, obviously, is, is this time of year, it's it's great. I mean, this is in January that we're recording this. So um, I, that's, uh, I mean, that's kind of the main stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I keep it pretty simple. Um, Do you travel much? Uh, I, I mean, before COVID, I did a lot more. Um, and I have been a little bit, uh, you know, just to go snowboarding, like, uh, going to Vermont, for example, oh, okay. to, to snowboard. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I used to a lot more when I, in like maybe 2012 or, or around there, the early 2010s, I really traveled a lot. Like I'd, you know, get a one-way ticket somewhere and, and like crash on a friend's couch or stay somewhere for like a couple weeks or then go, you know, bounce around one area, one city, and then go to another city mm. for, you know, two or three weeks. Like couch surfing kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. Or just visiting friends in different cities. Like I spent a lot of time in um, like the Bay Area, like San Francisco and mm. uh, Austin, Texas for South by Southwest, <clears throat> you know, stuff like that. Um, and just kind of bouncing around different places. But then in like the mid 2010s, I kind of uh, ended up staying around Syracuse more, uh, but still traveling quite a bit, just not as much as I was. Um, Mainly for snowboarding? No, no, not even. Home. Just kind of for variety because um, I could kind of work from anywhere as long as yeah, I had a laptop true. and a good internet connection. So uh, kind of living a somewhat nomadic lifestyle, yeah. but not really. Like I always had, you know, an apartment somewhere uh, in most cases. That's a cool thing about development. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I think people are now starting to see that. Obviously, a lot of people shifted to working from home with COVID, and now mm -hmm. you're seeing stuff like you know tons of people moving from the San Francisco Bay Area or New York City down to you know Florida or, mm -hmm. or Texas, um, and they know. could still be connected to yeah. Silicon Valley, right? If right. They have a, like, let's say they're working for Google, and sure. COVID happens, everyone's working from home. Why not just move to Texas? Yeah, if you're I mean, still working from home. No state income tax. You know, there are other reasons other than mm -hmm. the temperature. But, um, but yeah. Uh, Have you ever been to Silicon Valley? 
Yeah, I mean that's basically mm-hmm. like um, south of, of San Francisco. So, uh, what's it like there? I mean, it, it just, <laughs> just seems like California. I don't know. <laughs> you you can go. I mean, it's it's kind of funny to think about if you go to like I had a friend that worked at LinkedIn and like went into mm-hmm. his office once and it's just you know they have got all the snacks and like you know gyms and like everything that like, I don't know stereotypical stuff. But it's kind of funny when you drive past these buildings and it's like, oh, there's Google, there's Facebook. Yeah. Um, my favorite thing, though, in Mountain View is the Computer History Museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone ever has a chance to go to that, I mean, that it's mind-blowing just to see how quickly computers, oh, how quickly computers came up and, uh, you know, what... I mean, even in the 50s, there were these huge mechanical machines with punch cards and like all these people would fill out the punch cards, like rooms full of people Mm. filling out the punch cards. And it seems like, oh, this is so complicated. Why would anyone ever build this whole system? Mm. But actually, you know, that was the only that was all they had as far as computers. You know, there it it seems so easy to take for granted what we have today with with silicon chips and and everything when um you know you see where it all came from and how quickly it all happened uh so computer history museum is is awesome but that's mm-hmm. in uh in silicon valley and mountain view it's only been like 20 years right uh, well, since the well first I mean, computer like, when was that I, it depends what you count i mean mm-hmm. does an abacus count you know so uh that's how the computer history museum starts off is like at the beginning there's pretty much an abacus and some other things like that but you know like from the the, the 50s and 40s i mean that was really like World War Two was a big, um, a big accelerator of it all. So I mean, mm. you can see that kind of equipment from like the '40s and '50s, um, and and then during the Cold War, uh, that accelerated a lot of it with Sage, which was a system to, um, I mean, it was like a computer the size of a building with all these terminals, uh, and it was a way to look for ballistic missiles coming in from the Soviet Union. Mm. Um, it's just kind of funny. Um... Like any crazy traumatic events that are happening in our history ends up like jumpstarting technology even more. Like for instance, COVID happening, pushing oh, yeah. us to having work from home. Yeah. And then all these people cooped up and probably programming um, as best as they could. Yeah. Like it, it the, yeah, I don't know. I think it was Kathy Wood that was talking about it, but uh, she's a economist and financial manager, investor. But she was talking about how in all of these stock market crashes, it always spurs the economy towards like uh, technological innovation that like even though the, the crashes happen, the big tech comes out of it ahead because more problems are created in our economy, our society. So that gets people who are in technology to be more focused and driven to want to like solve these problems. Yeah, there's a really new interesting trend um, that I'm watching really carefully uh, that started around, um, I mean, I don't know, probably like 2016 or 17. And it was kind of started, it started a little bit in China, but then, um, you know, spread to the rest of the world with, uh, um, and, and now it was accelerated by COVID, but that's micro mobility. Mm-hmm. So uh, transportation, like re- really rethinking transportation um, and what's next for transportation. So a lot of people are really on this train of, oh, uh, autonomous cars. They're going to be self-driving cars. will be like taxis, you know, like what we think of as a car now. And you it just pulls up and you get in and, you know, you go somewhere. 
But and, and that's, you know, Uber's big bet of like, OK, well, right now we have humans driving the cars, but eventually they'll just be, you know, you order a car on your phone and there's no human driving it. Um, but with uh, micro mobility, that's like uh, these scooters. I mean, we don't really have them around Syracuse. I know there are those bikes, the the docked bikes, those like green bikes. I forget sink bikes lime, or something. Lime bikes. Well, the the lime bikes, yeah, those are in other cities. I was trying to think of what the one around here in Syracuse. Mm. Syracuse obviously isn't the the best There's some market here. for this. Yeah, right in front. I don't. I know they have their uh, garage up on Tip Hill. I think oh, I really? went, walked mm. past it once, but. Uh, but yeah, so micromobility is really just the idea of vehicles under 500 kilograms, which is like mm. like 1,100 pounds. So I mean, what's a like the scooters and bikes? Yeah, scooters, bikes. Um, yeah, bicycles, even just regular bicycles is is an example. But um, uh, also power assisted bikes, uh, which mm. are what those ones are around Syracuse. You know, it's you still have to pedal, but uh, it's helping you, and it's and it's really mm. easy to go up a big hill, and you can go much further distances, and they're more accessible to people who maybe aren't in the best shape, but yet they're still getting some exercise. Um, so there are a lot of really interesting things happening with micromobility right now. There's a lot of shifting around in the space, companies buying other companies. For example, Lime is one I've got my eye on. They haven't IPO'd yet, and this is an inv investment advice. Yeah, I'm yeah. just like <laughs> looking at this one really carefully because um, you know, they've bought a lot of companies. They're kind of, I think, one of the leaders in the space um, based on what I've seen compared to the other companies. And then you've got companies like Uber, which they sold off a whole, uh, I think it was their jump bikes. Like they kind of shut that all down and, and candle the bikes. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening. But uh, this whole mm -hmm. space I'm really interested in because it got accelerated by COVID. Uh, you know, people are less likely now, you know, to want to ride on a public bus or something like that, but maybe more likely to say, instead of taking the public bus, I'm going to take the scooter. Um, and and uh, the proliferation of those scooters over the past, or, well, I'm using scooters as one example, but scooters and dockless bikes or even docked bikes like, like what we have here, um, that has accelerated the development of new vehicles and improving those vehicles. So now it's like every six months, there might be a new design for the scooter mm -hmm. to try to make it more durable and last for more trips and, and um, you know, make it a more comfortable ride. But uh, it's just an area that I think in the next 10 years is going to be really fascinating to watch. Um, and with COVID, like you said, a lot of these cities have, have changed. Uh, they've introduced more bike lanes. They've either built more bike lanes or uh, even did temporary shutdowns of streets that turned into permanent shutdowns. I think Europe, that's been happening a lot. But uh, that brings in uh, more opportunity for, you know, people with their own bikes, uh, people with, you know, their own electric scooters or um, other types of vehicles, like even a boosted board, you know, like which oh, cool. they went out of business. Mm -hmm. But uh, unfortunately, but I mean, that was a great product and, uh, you know, that's a form of mm. micromobility. Um, and then I think we're going to see things really change, uh, in, you know, the next five years, 10 years with that, where, you know, right now riding a, you know, a battery powered scooter or even riding a bicycle isn't accessible to a lot of people, you know, elderly people or people, um, who, you know, just can't, can't balance and, and everything, uh, there will probably be some kind of vehicle in between a car and, you know, mm. these um, 
you know, like and a that's, golf cart kind of looking thing. Yeah, maybe even a golf cart. I mean, there are there have been these attempts at different vehicles, and there are a lot of. I mean, I don't know a lot of the companies. I can't come up with them off the top of my right. head, but yeah. there are a lot. I mean, and then you can also look at companies like Van Moof, which is, uh, I think I'm saying that right. Um, they're a company in the Netherlands that makes these really amazing electric bikes that don't even look like electric bikes and have a whole um, te- technology component to track them and stuff. So if it gets stolen, you know, you can like recover mm. it. But uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in innovation of the vehicles. And that's also, you know, a lot of people have been talking about like an Apple car or something. But, you know, what if they don't come out with a regular car or maybe they come out with a regular car first and then some vehicle that is in between that's autonomous, you know, that can go in a bike lane, uh, but doesn't have the same, um, you know, uh, barriers to use that, you know, a stand up scooter does. Do you so, think that would be effective here in Syracuse? I don't given know. The weather? I don't know. <laughs> but mm. so, but I, as far as like tech innovation goes, yeah. I think this is a good avenue to go down. Um, yeah. But uh, would you say that's the space that you're heavily focused on out of all the different stuff that's happening is the micro um, transportation, micro Micromobility. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm not so much focused on it. Like I'm, I'm not, I don't have any ideas in the space like of, of companies to build or anything, but mm-hmm. I'm just really interested in watching it because I think it's a trend that is picking up a lot of momentum very quickly mm-hmm. that a lot of people aren't really paying attention yeah, definitely to. Not. Um, and, you know, they're, it'll be interesting to see what happens, I think, just in the next, you know, five, 10 years in that, in that area. Uh, do you study like tech innovation that's happening on like a macro point of view? Yeah. I mean, like I with... think this is one trend that I've, I've heard about and got really interested in because mm-hmm. I think it's also because I have a lot of interest in cars. Like I've always been pretty interested in cars, like both the engineering of cars and then like car companies and kind of how they all fit together in the, the whole landscape of, of the world. And, mm-hmm. um, it's interesting that, you know, obviously cars are, you know, the U S most cities are built around cars where when you go to Europe, it's like, okay, they, they were not built around cars originally. And that's where maybe micro mobility fits in more, but, um, I'm, I'm just kind of, I think I was interested in cars and then got into, uh, you know, kind of following different trends of, of different car mm. companies and wondering what was happening with all this autonomy. You know, obviously there's Google, Uber and, and Tesla are some of the biggest, um, investors in, in, uh, you know, autonomous technologies. Um, and I think Uber shut theirs down, but then, you know, GM, obviously like they bought some at least one big company, I can't remember which, to get in, try to work on autonomy. So, I mean, there's a lot of investment going into this <clears throat> autonomy, but, you know, is that like, is just a regular car like we think about right. it today with autonomy going to be widespread or something mm-hmm. else that's going to be something more like micro mobility with autonomy? Or a uh, small vehicle, some sort, maybe like yeah. a one person car. Right, right, exactly. And that's... you just sit in there. I mean, because let the robot. Yeah. Transport you around. <laughs> and even like a, you know, like a 1990s Miata is like, I think less, you know, maybe 1500 pounds or something or somewhere mm-hmm. around there, less than 2000. So it's not that far off <clears throat> from, you know, a thousand pound car or micro mobility vehicle. So, I mean, it like a one person or two person vehicle could be really interesting. And, yeah. um, you know, then you wonder, does it, can it go in bike lanes and how will this, uh, you know, reshape, um, reshape different cities around the world so uh, you, you hit on uh autonomous cars a yeah. little bit um is that something you have doubt in or uh as far as like uh that being possible to happen or is it something that you think that 
uh, micromobility will take over. Like, I guess I'm trying to get your thoughts on uh, what's happening with Tesla right now, EVs in that whole market, and where you think the market's headed towards in the next five, 10 years. Sure. I mean, that's interesting. You said, you know, Tesla and, you know, autonomy and EVs, you know, those don't necessarily go hand in hand. So that's, I think, a really interesting area where um, autonomy, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, eventually it'll exist. But then the question Mm -hmm. is when? Uh, you know, is it going to be in 30 years? Is it going to be in 50 years? Is it going to be in five years, you know, fully autonomous, you know, where you get in and you don't have to even be a licensed driver um, to, to, you know, mm. go in a vehicle somewhere. How I long think, do you think that'll be? Out? I don't know. <laughs> okay. You don't, don't even no want to speculate. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, I was just driving here and I mean, we had a huge snowstorm last night and I was just thinking, well, like, you know, I can't, I wouldn't trust a, a vehicle right. to just drive me in this. Uh, I mean, eventually we'll get there. But, um, you know, the, the systems now, like uh, Tesla's system is so good on the highway and, um, you know, even on just kind of regular roads. Uh, but, you know, it's it's still not up to where a regular driver would be, um, you know, in, in some cases. Then there are other cases like, you know, if there's uh, a car in front of you and you can't see the car in front of that car, that's a case where, um, you know, cars uh, with autonomous modes are better than the human driver because if the car in front slams on the brakes, the radar on the car can pick it up and slam on the brakes even if mm. the car in between doesn't. So, I mean, there are there are, there are advantages right now that, you know, humans can't do, but overall I'd say that obviously the human wins. But um, they do talk about how, like, if you have a whole network of autonomy. Sure autonomous but if you have all the cars working in tandem with each other on like a supercomputer network or so to speak then they can communicate to each other so like in your uh situation like if the car in front slams on their brakes the car in the middle and in the car in the back like the car in the back will know that that car and two rows up Mm -hmm. slammed on their brakes so then they can all like be basically simultaneously communicating with each other to know uh, like causal relationships. Sure, eventually. I mean, but I mean, what's the lifespan of a car? People are driving cars mm. easily, you know, 40, 50 years old on the longer end, but more like, you know, 10, 20 years old. So how long will it take? You know, once, like, I think it's standard with, with now the in the US. software or the... Oh, I just mean like cars, you know, cars in general, like how long will it be before every car has that type of system? It's going to be a long mm. time because, you know, even if every car, every new car made now has it, well, you know, what percentage of the cars are new cars out there, you know, not like the not adoption rate, right? how yeah. quick will it be? Okay. Well, and how long, how, you know, because people keep cars for a long time, you know, hmm. so um, it'll take a long time, but I mean, yeah, every, every incremental, you know, thing with that's helping. And I think it, I don't know if it's, if it's a law now, but those braking, you know, automatic braking systems, like that's a great innovation that will prevent hmm. a lot of people rear ending other people. Um, but, uh, but you, you mentioned, you know, autonomy and EVs almost as one thing, but I think about like, that's really two, almost two very different things. I mean, if you look at Tesla, for example, they have, um, uh, you know, I, I like to think that those are really interesting vehicles because, uh, first of all, you've got the autonomy, which, you know, it could be even on a, a gas powered car. Um, you know, there's maybe some slight differences, but you know, th- there's the autonomy, which is like its own thing. And then the electronic powertrain, which is kind of its own separate thing too, which mm-hmm. is the batteries and electric motors. Um, and so they kind of have rolled both up into one package that either one is very compelling, but you know, together it's a really good package. 
Um, but, you know, they're really getting into energy, which I think is extremely interesting with, you know, for example, um, the, their whole solar business mm. and their whole battery business, um, the, the power wall, which is a, it's almost like a, a replacement for a generator, but it's really a thing that, um, do you know, are you familiar with the power wall? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So like, I mean, that's a really interesting you know, to have battery storage in your house like that, so yeah. it can make solar powers make solar panels make more sense. Because uh, it used to just be where, um, if you had solar panels, it would directly power the electricity that you have. There was no storage of that. Right. Energy, it right? would power your house if you were using that much, or it would go back to the grid and like your power meter would uh, turn the other direction, and you know, like National Grid would pay you for the power. Really? There was extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, but it's also a good, you know, backup system in case, you know, like when there are blackouts or if, you know, the power goes out, mm-hmm. it's a way to, you know, still be able to use, um, you know, power in your house or wherever. Uh, so, I mean, they've got that whole business. But then um, one of the interesting things that's I just went down a whole YouTube hole of watching these very technical videos about the uh, heating and, and air conditioning systems uh, in uh, in Tesla's, um, especially in the Model Y, which is like the small SUV they came out with last year, and the model, the newer Model Three now has the same thing, where it's uh, it uses heat pump, which is almost like running an air conditioner in reverse. It's like, um, you know, like if you put uh, if you put some, you know, your refrigerator cools things down inside it, but then throws off heat outside the refrigerator, right? So it's like that outer part throwing off the heat. Mm. That's like a heater, you know. That's so so they've built this really advanced system that's very power efficient to transfer heat around. So, I mean, you've got a lot of different things happening where the batteries have to be a certain temperature to run effectively in the car to get the most range and have the best performance. Um, but then, you know, the people in the car want to be a certain temperature, either hotter or colder than the outside air. Um, and the motors throw off extra heat. So if you take all these, you know, sources of heat and, you know, needs for something to be hotter or colder, how do you transfer that heat around in a way that's most efficient? So, I mean, they're already doing that in these cars, but now, um, the, the speculation, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious now is that they're going to get into home, uh, Mm -hmm. heating and air conditioning systems that are extremely power efficient, uh, and that also maybe combine with like a hot water heater where you might have extra heat being produced that's not being used or a refrigerator. Like how do you move this, transfer this uh, kinetic energy around in a way that's most efficient and, you know, gets where people want it most, I guess, without using a lot of power. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting, I mean, they've got a lot of interesting stuff beyond just EVs, energy. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, well, I mean, a lot of people are working on that type of thing, but I'm just looking at how they're positioned with like, they're already in a lot of people's houses with the power wall uh, and solar panels or both. And it's interesting to see that now they've got from, you know, trying to build really good EVs and putting a lot of engineering effort into heat pumps and and air conditioners, basically, um, they can take what they've built there and put it into people's homes. And it's kind of like they're just building this Mm -hmm. massive energy company, plus not to mention the batteries. Like I just mentioned it, but the batteries, you know, it's like, uh, they've, they've doubled the lithium ion battery capacity in the world. You know, that's, it's, um, it's pretty crazy to see. So I don't know. I mean, it's funny too, because their stock price is just insane. And I, (laughs) I I don't have any Tesla stock because I'm just like, 
I think it's so <laughs> insane how much it's gone up, but I don't know. I mean, they're they're really big, but they've only shipped, you know, they shipped 500,000 cars last year and, mm. you know, the big car companies are making more like 10 million cars in a year. So they've got a lot of a lot to catch up on the car side, but it's, at the same time, you know, they've got all this other interesting mm. energy stuff going on plus the autonomy, so it's kind yeah, of an to, interesting to area. touch on the the stock price. Uh I think a lot of it is the hype that's been built up. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, people were kind of late to the show of like really understanding Tesla and what it's all about. And then just going on YouTube and seeing all these videos and being like, holy shit, like this is crazy. What's going to happen in the next five to 10 years? So it like blows up the stock price. Everyone's at home because of COVID. Um, I think it's kind of valid though, because if you're making an investment, you're looking out to the next five, 10 years. Uh, but as far as evaluation, like current day, I don't think it's accurate. But if you're factoring in like what they could potentially be doing five, 10 years from from now on, I think it's a, uh, an accurate pricing for for the future. But but again, sure, for now, know. I think it's kind of ridiculous. So yeah. so will it drop back down? I don't know. That's what I'm kind of hoping for. Um, sure. <laughs> just to get in on the investment, because I was looking back at it back in like uh, 2019. Yeah. And uh, at that point, I was saving up a bunch of money to invest in Tesla. And then it blew up. And I'm like, okay, this is going to go back down. Uh, but it never did. <laughs> right. And it just kept going up. And I was like, shit, I just missed out. Yeah. And then I changed my direction to Bitcoin, oh, okay. which we can talk about sure. too. Um, but I have some money invested in that. Um, and I kind of had this feeling that there was going to be another surge of hype, uh, similar to what happened back in 2017. And 2013. Oh, A lot of people yeah, don't remember that one mm-hmm. either. When it when it up, uh, Bitcoin went up to like 1200 and everybody was like, whoa, $1,200? That's insane. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it got that high. But, you know, then it got up to 19,000 or whatever, 18, 19,000. And then it got to, you know, what, 42,000. Mm. I don't know if this is going to be, if it's going to go even more now. I don't know, because we're getting down there. Yeah, but, it's at like 30K, I think. Yeah, somewhere around there. But, but uh, it's interesting, because I wonder how low will it go? Probably mm. not 10,000, you know? So, I don't know. Are you in right now? Oh, yeah. You are? Okay. Have yeah. you, when, when did you start investing? In, in Bitcoin? Bitcoin? Well, I had a... In 2013, I think, I started, a, I had a Litecoin mining mm. rig. Like, um, So basically, it's like you get a bunch the of graphics. Miner? Or was no, that this was before. This was, um, so basically, you build a computer, uh, mm. like a, a Windows computer, uh, and it had three like gaming graphics cards, like three of like really high-end gaming graphics cards, and that's what uh, does the computing. Mm. Um, and so it would use like, I don't know, 700 Watts of power or something. Maybe no more than that. I don't know. Anyway, it would, uh, it would just, you know, I'd plug it in and it would just run and I would, it was part of a pool. So I would get yeah. Litecoin from that. And then I think I sold all that for Bitcoin or something. I think I still have some Litecoin, but anyway. Was it I, easier to mine Litecoin? Is that why you chose that route? Uh, I can't really remember. I mean, it didn't really matter at that point. It yeah. was like you could mine something and, and I think Bit, or Litecoin, you ended up with like just more of them, even though they were lower priced. I don't really remember why. I like proportionately, they were the same. But I it mean, it was like you can more. always just take your Litecoin and exchange it for Bitcoin. So it was like, oh, oh okay. you just mine something and then um you know it's so all like interconnected like if one uh 
crypto goes up, then they all kind of like rise that kind of. But I mean, Ethereum only got to like fourteen hundred this time, and its previous Mm. high was like twelve hundred, I think. So that was surprising to me because I kind of I wasn't sure, you know, how Ethereum is going to do there. I mean, there are so many now, and what happened the last time around was crazy with you know everybody having these ICOs like and and introducing new coins and hyping them up and. Um, then selling out like the owners selling yeah, out so a and lot just of leaving them everyone just in the dust. <laughs> yeah so i mean it's it's kind of an interesting thing uh with that that aspect but um you know i got into it back then and uh was just interested in it um and then yeah that was before when it, then it ran up i think in 2013 to like 1200 dollars, and then it was down for years until this 2017 I mean, all of them. I mean, there weren't that many then. It was maybe like Bitcoin and Litecoin. And I can't remember even when Ethereum wasn't even around then, I don't think. And and then, you know, 2017 was interesting with that run up. And then after that, I was kind of like, all right, this seems to have some legs. But the... uh, I can't believe, you know, with even with COVID, I was surprised it went down so much when the market crashed in mid uh, March of last year. But mm-hmm. that at the same time, you have to think like there were people with money in that that needed cash right away. They were concerned they wanted to go into cash. And, you know, it really dipped down to like, I don't know, Bitcoin was really low, like almost 3000 yeah. at that point. Um, so uh i don't i I think long term it's interesting to me because it's it's kind of got that like the name brand it's like the main one you know and bitcoin's kind of a cool name like people know bit it's like Mm -hmm. a computers but the coin like money so i don't know it just seems like a good name to me and it's interesting like it's it probably won't be the main one for transactions and everything Mm -hmm. unless the lightning network can really like you know get momentum and everything with it but i don't know i mean i'm just interested in it because it's like the main one um is that the main reason why you're invested is because you see it like do you see it becoming um i don't know like how bullish are you on the whole thesis i mean i think (laughs) uh yeah i'm really bullish on it you are okay yeah i mean i i worry though i mean here's here the i think it's been really battle tested at this point as far as just like security and and hopefully being resistant to 51 percent attacks and like you Mm -hmm. know i uh, it would change i guess with quantum computing but um, you know, I think it's technology wise, it seems pretty sound at this point. If, you know, we're how many, however many 10 years into it. Uh, but I worry, I mean, I don't know how they would do it, but it really seems like the, the exact kind of target that governments would really try to crack down on, hmm. uh, going forward. And so I'm most, I think that's like kind of what I'm most nervous about. The government regulation for Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. And like trying to get people to not have their own private keys um, to actually be able to hold it in cold storage on their own um, to like have it themselves. Like, you know how basically when you get a bank account in the US, you have to fill out, you know, KYC, AML, Mm -hmm. like uh, know your customer and in money laundering uh, forms. Um, and that's to track your identity associated with the account so that, you know, if there's suspected money laundering or something like that, they know whose account that is. But with a cryptocurrency wallet, you know, you can just have that. And sure, the the especially with, you know, Bitcoin, the ledger is um, is public so you can know what addresses have what and where it's going. But, you know, for whoever owns that wallet, well, there's no documentation to say who that is. Hmm. And so I could just see like, you know, that that being a 
considered a problem. Especially. But they're still able to track the wallet through the ledger. So yeah. they just don't know whose name is associated with that wallet. Yeah. And that's yeah. the issue. Well, I mean, I think the bigger issue is just control over. Uh, I, okay. So we're seeing a lot of deplatforming now where people mm-hmm. are getting kicked off of, of certain platforms like YouTube, for example. Uh, and one of the big ways people make money from YouTube is Patreon. So if someone has a something on YouTube that either YouTube doesn't like or someone who has influence over YouTube doesn't like, uh, that person can get kicked off of YouTube. Now that person, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't have views. But then also someone like Patreon could say, okay, we're cutting you off too. You know, you're kicked off of Patreon. Now that person doesn't have, you know, an income source. And that that's all through, you know, like the traditional like money system of, okay, sending dollars to people through Patreon. Mm-hmm. But uh, if this person still has an audience and wants to take money through Bitcoin, well, now it becomes a lot harder to cut that person off. You know, how do you de-platform this person from Bitcoin? Mm. You know, and that's a that's a scary thing, because what if now someone who is, you know, not um, aligned with uh, what uh, either YouTube or Facebook or, you know, a government entity wants is able to acquire all this value through Bitcoin and can't be shut down through the regular banking system. Um, you know, it's it's is that a bad a thing, though? I don't necessarily think it is but it's also but the the way they go after it is they say oh well people buy drugs with bitcoin Mm -hmm. or oh there's you know people um all kinds of illicit things you can do with bitcoin basically and but it's like okay you know the same thing with cash uh and obviously that's more trackable well well, to some degree it's less trackable it is but, but it's but it's like at least they have control over the dollars, you know, in the end or the whatever currency. So uh, just for people that um, are listening in. So like <laughs> Bitcoin, how it's Going tracked. On a tangent here. Uh, it, it's tracked through the public ledger. Yeah. And um, the only anonymity to it is the fact that me, Kyle Fisk, is not associated with the crypto wallet. It's um, decentralized. Okay, how how do I explain? So it? it's so, like you've got an address. Uh, your address is one two three four, right? For and your, and they don't wallet. know that's associated to me. It's uh, just the wallet itself. Well, they there. might, you know, who's they? But you know, whoever it is might not. Whoever has access to the ledger doesn't necessarily know that. But if you have a Coinbase account and that's your address, know. well, yeah, that they're very, you know, they know their customers pretty much. I would assume. But okay, then so. They're, since I'm, all I'm trying to say is like since it's on a public ledger mm-hmm. and anyone can go into that ledger on a Bitcoin and see, okay, this is what crypto wallet is associated with these transactions. And then that crypto wallet, if you're on Coinbase or Cash App, whatever it might be, is associated to me, then they all, all of that is tracked publicly then. So they would be able to know and they wouldn't be able to regulate and like print out money and like right. prevent distribution of that money but they would at least be able to see all those transactions that are associated with me. And um, yeah, I just don't really understand the argument as like, oh, it's just for use of drug. Um, oh, I don't think so. It's not. Like that. But that I'm just saying that's where <laughs> that's how this regulation can come into play. You know, it's, it's like, oh, well, doesn't everybody agree that, you know, child pornography is bad? We need to ban this because you know whatever like same mm. with anything that's encrypted right so like anything end-to-end encrypted that's why uh, i mean so 
uh, you know, like with the San Bernardino shooter, how Apple wouldn't unlock the phone because they would have to put in a backdoor to the encryption. This was a, oh. a couple of years ago now, but like they couldn't gain access to it because the, it was the encrypted? FBI said, hey, we want to be able to access this guy's phone. Will you help us? And they said no, because if mm -hmm. we introduce a backdoor for that, then it you know breaks encryption on every iPhone. And, yeah. they, and they're like, we take a stance that we care more about privacy. But then you see other examples of Apple taking kind of a different approach where, for example, if you, you know, iCloud uh, or what is it? Uh, iMessage is end-to-end -end encrypted. So it's if I send you a message, um, you know, someone monitoring our internet connection in between can't read that message without the key that's on, you know, our phones. But uh, when you back up to iCloud, it also mm. backs up the key. So if you use iCloud backup, it's not really encrypted because whoever has access to that backup can get the key. Mm -hmm. And then Apple's part of Prism, which is like the big government surveillance oh, program. Uh oh, I just ran out of battery. Oh no, hopefully it's safe. Okay. <laughs> Getting on the Bitcoin stuff. All right, so the battery died, but we're back. We were talking about- Sorry about that. I don't know what we were, where did we leave off? something about bitcoin bitcoin and uh, oh i think i was Crypto. talking about yeah well just how um i was talking about how uh it's people right now with like the existing channels i mean even it even you know you look at something like youtube people get kicked off of youtube and then you know that's their livelihood gone because it's the centralized service and there has been you know over time different decentralized services like you know if you think about like BitTorrent. i don't know if you know, you're familiar mm. with like that. Like LimeWire? Uh, that was, I think, sharing. wasn't it? Peer, yeah, that I don't know if that was centralized. Like I can't remember. Like things? Yeah, but like, yeah, these decentralized systems, you know, haven't really won out because the centralized systems have kind of some more efficiency behind them. But now that mm. we're seeing more people getting deplatformed and uh, and things like that, especially from financial platforms i'm wondering how much we're going to see both the growth of decentralized services like a decentralized youtube which there are a number mm -hmm. of them uh and you know also how that fits in with decentralized currency and the ab <clears throat> ability to just send something of value over the internet to people uh you know in a secure way anywhere in the world do you um, see that being the new, the new infrastructure maybe i mean in, in some ways uh but i mean it depends on the service you know some I think in general, it seems like the centralized services went out just for efficiency. But, um, you know, I could see if enough people care about um, about deplatforming or don't agree with, uh, you know, who's getting kicked off of these platforms or there's enough momentum around another decentralized platform in a certain area, whether it's video or some sort of communication or, um, you know, Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies for sending uh you know sending value uh i mean i think we'll we'll probably see that grow um i know earlier before just before we started recording we were talking about podcasting and that's another interesting one where it's like you see podcasting has been around since what like 2004 i think 2003 maybe it was introduced um i mean it, it was it's really a uh it was originally based on 
uh, blogs, like RSS feeds for blogs. Do you remember like Google Reader? You could subscribe mm -hmm. to a blog and you'd get all the posts. And then, you know, instead of just an article, the idea was let's attach an audio or video file to it. Um, and then there was a special kind of RSS reader, something like Google Reader, but just for podcasts. And it would just check the feed. Oh, there's a new file. Download the file. And it was just hosted on a server like any website um, it's, or any, any file normally. Uh, it didn't have to go through some third party. Uh, there are directories like the Apple directory and a podcast could get delisted from the directory. But as long as that, you know, RSS feed address still works, you can still check it for new episodes, download the episodes, as long as the server where that's running doesn't get shut down. Um, and I think that's an interesting thing that now, like I, I know this, you said you distribute through Anchor, mm -hmm. right, which is owned yeah. by Spotify. Uh, Spotify has this whole thing, uh, this whole directory of things they call podcasts, but they don't fit into what I just described, which is this RSS feed model. Um, the the because it's centralized, right? And they third party. they control it. And to have a podcast on Spotify, that you have to agree to their terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. With real, what I would consider real podcasting, which is just hosted somewhere else with an RSS feed that may be also listed on Spotify, but um, that doesn't have a gatekeeper. The mm -hmm. only gatekeeper is the stuff really high up on the internet, like DNS, you know, like, and that's, uh, so it's kind of like another. decentralized audio or files. Uh, file yeah. Sharing. Yeah. I would say it's, it's like, uh, well, yeah. I mean, there used to be more video podcasts and that's all part of the specification. Like when it used to be when iTunes rolled out in, you know, whatever it was, 2003 or four or something and first supported podcasts, it supported both video and audio podcasts. But then, you know, over time, people got more away from video and it became more of an audio medium. But, uh, you know, there are, most podcast players will support just, you know, put in the, the URL of the podcast and, you know, you can you can get it that way. Um, and so it's interesting to see, you know, even with that, you know, for example, Joe Rogan moving from uh, a podcast with a YouTube channel over to spotify huge. right well then it's then it's not what i i wouldn't <clears throat> consider it a podcast anymore because it's isolated on their platform <clears throat> um but uh but then then it's a more centralized thing now it's you know if he has a guest on now it it could create um controversy within the company and you know they're basically vouching for things that are on it where if he's just doing a <clears throat> podcast with some people uh, independently and hosting it independently, then that, you know, who, who's the gatekeeper yeah. there? There's no false information that, or at least people are telling the truth. Now it's like this acting sort of thing. If he gets in the situation where like, uh, gets into conflict with Spotify's agenda. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that, I mean, it's just that, that, you know, it's, that's a, obviously a, a big example but, um, you know, it's just the idea that anybody can independently create a show and distribute it almost like with mm -hmm. a website, like you can put up a website and distribute it. But then you run into things like, you know, well, what about then when the hosting company gets involved, like what just happened with Parler and, and AWS where they shut them down and said, <clears throat> you can't even use our servers. Yeah, let's get into that. Actually, what, what was that all about? Oh, the I mean, Parler thing. I heard it very briefly. Well, it was an app. Um, it was a Twitter like app uh for basically for people who had been deplatformed from twitter like they got oh, kicked okay. off of twitter but 
uh, it's still it was still centralized. You know, it was still on a server somewhere, so it could easily be shut down uh, with the hosting company getting shut down. But the reason I, I mean, I think it's interesting okay. with like it ties in with with um, the the podcasting <clears throat> part of it that I'm talking about is like you know it's it's interesting to me because it's still this area where there can be shows and it's not like YouTube where someone can just be kicked off of it, mm. um, kicked off of podcasting. Someone can be kicked off of a podcast directory, but podcasting like as a technology, hopefully people will still continue to make podcast apps that, you know, work the traditional way with RSS feeds and things like that. Mm. Um, because what was the utility of that? Was it like for the sake of like freedom of expression and for speech? What? Um, using the RSS feeds originally? Uh, well, it was really a mechanism to distribute audio. It was almost like a, it was it was before, it's hard to almost imagine this time, but it was before streaming audio was a big thing because internet CDs, connections were slower. It was a little bit around there. It was almost like um, a radio show version of a blog was like kind of the idea because you have, it was almost really a blog with an audio file almost that was, mm. Uh, fetched by a certain kind of reader one of the initial use cases was um, you know you had an ipod you plug it into a computer that computer's been sitting you know on the internet overnight and downloaded some new shows you plug in your ipod it puts those shows onto your ipod and now you disconnect it and you can go and you can listen to those shows mm -hmm. and so that was kind of how it worked and these these attachments were just downloaded to the computer and then moved over um, to the iPod, where now it's turned into more of just something that's called a podcast, where it's just really just like this streaming thing. It's interesting, though, there's a it's a pretty cool history um, of it. Uh, this guy, Adam Curry, uh, was one of the inventors of it, basically back back then, um, and uh, still has a podcast uh, to this day. That's, a, I think, a very well done podcast. But he's working on something called Podcasting 2.0, which is really kind of taking that original podcast model and building in some new things like being able to actually make direct payments to the people whose podcast you're listening to. And it's almost like a, it's like what I would consider the the path of the true version of podcasting in a world where now it's being diluted by, you know, Spotify getting into it. Apple kind of made the directory back then and just hasn't really done much other than that with podcasting except they have their own podcast app that ships and then there's a whole ecosystem of other you know third-party podcast apps um, and then other companies that have tried to do uh, different things at different areas in the stack like Libsyn which they will host podcasts but then they inject ads and things like that dynamically mm -hmm. so if you're in Syracuse and you're downloading a podcast it might have an ad for like a local car dealer and that's kind of how how that all happens but this the, it's interesting i'm really interested to see how this goes like if this deplatforming stuff really keeps amping up and people are getting kicked off of these platforms um what will happen with you know the spotify style of you know what's called podcasting versus like real like decentralized well not so much decentralized but like rss based podcasting and this whole idea of podcasting mm. 2.0 if it'll resurface uh yeah, I mean, it's still out there. Like, that's how most podcasts are still working. Like, most podcasts, um, uh, like, if you have a podcast app, like Overcast is the one I use, um, which is, a, I like that one. It's made by one guy. Again, like an app just made by one person um, with a, a revenue model. And, you know, it's kind of cool uh, to 
that you know one person can make such a good app. Uh, but uh, when you go and search for a podcast, all that's happening is behind the scenes in the directory, it has that RSS feed address, and then it's saying, okay, subscribe to this. And then your podcast player is just checking that RSS feed address, <clears throat> and anytime there's a new one, it downloads it. Mm. Uh, it downloads the file, so you can listen to it later, or you can you know stream it from the server. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, it's interesting. To, well, so I mentioned... Um, uh, Adam Curry, uh, who was like mm. one of the inventors of podcasting, uh, his podcast uh, with John C. Dvorak is the other guy, No Agenda, it's called. They do it live twice a week um, where it's broadcast live and then available as a podcast. But it's really interesting to see the whole ecosystem they've built up around mm. it where it's all donation based. So they've they um, I mean, they consider themselves somewhat uncancelable or undeplatformable because they don't have advertisers. So they don't have to answer to the advertisers and what the advertisers are saying. And they, um, you know, are funded by people listening to them and saying, Oh, I got value out of this show. So as long as they make, keep making something that people find valuable, uh, and they don't get kicked off of their hosts, which hopefully, you know, I mean, it's the kind of thing where you can kind of keep moving around hosts, I guess, if, if a certain host doesn't like you. But um, it's kind of interesting to see, uh, you know, that, um, you know, watch what's happening there, because I know there have been clips from that show that then will go on YouTube and get, you know, kicked off of YouTube. So then it's like, well, you know. Because of just like the explicit nature to it? No, not even. It's because of stuff like they'll play a clip like of something that like Anthony Fauci even said back in like March. And then YouTube will say, oh, that's misinformation because he told people not to wear a mask, you know, even though it was a clip of, you know, like Insane. an actual <laughs> clip from. Yeah. And so it's it's um it's pretty wild to see what's happening with these platforms and like where where this all might go. Yeah. Um, but I'm interested, you know, that it's interesting to see, you know, with these, these, especially podcasting is something I've always been interested in, you know, since it was first a thing and now, you know, all the way through to today, seeing what'll happen with it. Yeah. And I think ultimately it's about the de decentralization of it. So having no person at the top making the orders and dictating what people are trying to get out into the world. Um, hopefully it's the truth. Uh, but just having that freedom to say whatever you want. Um, mm -hmm. Do you see any promise in Ethereum playing a part into this? Ethereum. With how the infrastructure is, it's a decentralized platform. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's as far as the whole uh, distributed apps or dApps uh, area, I don't know a lot about that. Or, I mean, there could be, I don't know. I, I would say probably as far as just like podcasting, um, any of these cryptocurrencies could be a good avenue. Well, some of them could be a good avenue for, um, you know, giving donations or, um, you know, somehow funding things that you want more of, you mm -hmm. know, like artistic endeavors or, um, you know, podcasts or whatever it is. I mean, I guess it's, it depends like where are you getting that content, but it's just the idea that, um, you know, I, I think that that we might see more of this, um, you know, growth of of cryptocurrency just for sending money even overseas, like cutting out things like Western <laughs> Union or, you know, these companies that charge really large fees to send money. I mean, that's like one basic use case. 
like Western Union, you know, mm-hmm. like if you wanted to send money to somebody in Europe, right? Like how would you, there, there are a number of ways you could do it, but like you're going through some other third party going through the banking mm-hmm. system versus just sending, you know, some, some either Bitcoin or another, like either a, like a USD tether or something, you know, directly to an right. address and yeah. there's no middleman. And like um, Cuba, for instance, that country's so locked down that yeah. even if you try to send money over there, it uh, has to pass through the government to be right. approved. Yeah, and yeah. it's like this long chain of events to be able to get to that point to send it. Yeah. <laughs> when you could just send Bitcoin over to someone. Right. And yeah. I, it's uh, definitely a privilege being in America uh, and a lot of the uh, issues that are happening around the world that make Bitcoin so promising or so like hopeful. Uh, we don't have to deal with a lot of those issues. So uh, as far as like cr- trying to create a global network or a global finance exchange, I think crypto is one of the best options yeah, it'll be interesting that we have right see. now. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested to see what happens with it all and what kinds of uh, new uses people come up with too hmm. and, and dApps and things like that. Yeah. Um, do you think we covered most of the stuff you I wanted mean, to win Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really have any, uh, any real... Um, agenda of stuff to cover i guess so uh yeah it's been good talking nice to meet you nice meeting you too (laughs) thanks for being on the podcast uh i'll have to thank tom for getting the referral over to you um but yeah it's been it's been a good time all right thanks (laughs) um yeah so before i uh end the podcast officially uh there was something that i wanted to talk to you about and it's basically an app idea that I have um, oh, okay. that I've been kind of building out in my head yeah. uh, for the past couple of years. Oh, okay. Uh, kind of alongside with the brand. Um, but we're, we're talking a lot about decentralization and how blockchain is a promising avenue for um, potentially social networks in general to be able to give people that freedom of expression to do what they want to do and not having a centralized control kind of like the libertarian ideology of just being free to be yourself um so i was thinking if you could pair somehow the decentralization or ethereum uh blockchain infrastructure to a social network and like you're saying there's youtubes out there or there's platforms like youtube that are decentralized um a social network that's on a blockchain uh, but also another layer to that being that, and I'll just get right into it because I'm having trouble like sorting out my thoughts, but um, basically when you go on the app, it's kind of like a journal of some sort where you can write down or it's like uh, a journal for multimedia based off of your own like documented experiences. So you can post on there and you can be like, this is the stuff that I'm doing. And you kind of create like a collection of all these uh pieces of media that represent who you are mm-hmm. and this might be a little bit too future oriented like i don't know if we can necessarily do this now but if you have an ai or an algorithm that's able to understand who you are kind of like a, a personal assistant of sorts and then as you develop yourself on that app uh the ai or personal assistant's able to understand you more and more and then it's able to build out basically like a personalized algorithm of sorts to then be able to still on a blockchain connect you with either other people, places, things that are happening within that network that will align with your values. 
So in simplest form, you go on the app, you create content that represents you, which is already happening. Um, your AI is able to understand your values. And then that AI through the network is able to connect you to other things that align with those values. So it's a different approach than, um, this is gonna be hard to communicate because it's not like fully sorted out, but like the, the models we have now with YouTube, it's kind of like more externally seeking where it's like you go out and you try to find content or like YouTube itself will recommend things to mm -hmm. you that are like outside of you. And it's kind of like this controlling force that like, oh, I'm getting stuff and it doesn't really match me. And it's just like, it's kind of aligned with me because I watched a video of that like last week, but the AI or algorithm doesn't really have a good sense of like really understanding who that consumer is. So, but like if you hold, flip that whole business model uh, to being more like, uh, it's, it's basically trying to get people to be more introspective too in themselves. And I'm throwing a lot at you. Yeah. So stop me if this is a, a bit too much and I can sort it out. But like basically the whole premise is to try to get people to understand themselves mm -hmm. and gain self-awareness and really build a relationship with the algorithm and who they are to like ask those questions. And then it's also trying to get people um, a more sense of meaning and fulfillment in their lives because they're able to get connected with things that align with who they are. So like approaching this from the phil philosophical standpoint while also trying to uh, use technology to match those kind of agendas. So you're looking to um, basically like surface things to someone that are amazing recommendations, but oh, I never would have thought that I would have liked that. Right, because kind of a lot of times like, well, also getting people so they just focus more on themselves mm -hmm. as opposed to what's happening around them. Mm -hmm. Because in this app, you could just focus on yourself. Like, who am I? Really hone in on your interest. Put that out there. Create your personalized profile. And then the AI does the work to seek out things that match up to that. Whereas in our model, I feel like a lot of people are trying to seek outside mm -hmm. for validation because they need a market. They need to get a... like. It really is just like the capitalistic, not knocking capital, it's just where we're at, but like trying to get money based off of like building out a network and like finding other people that um, give you a sense of approval, whereas trying to find your own sense of approval within yourself and then letting technology do the work uh, that, yeah, it's just, do you kind of see that like working I, I, on the I, others? I think I, well, I mean, you've got a lot of different moving parts here, but I think that it's, I, I've often also thought about an idea of just what's an app that people would like go into and because it's really, it's almost like any time, you know, Facebook and Instagram, like just the whole feed idea, I guess Twitter too, but Instagram, especially and Facebook, same company, but uh they've developed their algorithms so that if you have any little fraction of time, you know, you can just observe people doing this at any little fraction of time available. Um, they'll just find themselves in Instagram, you know, not even consciously thinking about it either. It was just a notification then what that went off or the little thing that suggests apps on the iPhone, you know, where it's like, oh, it shows apps you've used recently, Oops. shows apps you've used recently. And 
uh, you know, Instagram happens to be in there and then you click it and now you're in Instagram and you're just waiting in line for, you know, two minutes for something. But now you start scrolling and it just becomes a habit. Oh, now you're just sitting on the couch, even though mm. you're like watching a movie. Oh, now you find yourself going through Instagram and it's like it takes you out of yourself. Yeah, right. And I, I like that what you're what you're talking about sounds like the opposite of that. Yeah. But then the question is, and this goes back to what we were talking about way earlier, how do you you know, actually get people into those good habits. You know, how do you use this technology for good to help people um, be more introspective? Well, I like that aspect mm. of it a lot. And, you know, I've thought about that too. Like even sometimes I'll open the notes app and just start, you know, kind of writing stuff like journaling stuff. And I'll go back and look at the notes and delete notes and edit notes. And it's kind of like, oh, what would, a, you know, it's a way to be a kind of introspective and journal. But I think the the problem is now that these other apps are just so good at getting people's attention mm. and they get addicted, you know, to looking at Instagram and stuff where unless yeah. you really take steps to tell your phone, no, don't recommend me Instagram or limit the time I'm allowed on Instagram every day, then, you know, that's uh, like it's just going to happen. Mm. So I think it's it's interesting, too. It's almost like a question of how do you make people aware, even if this app existed, how would you make people aware to the point where they'd want to, you know, they'd get some sort of uh mental reward from doing this um i think it's by using it by being all right so i'll just i'm gonna lay it all out there Um, okay uh but i think it's about being transparent with people and being like if you become more introspective and you understand yourself this ai will do the work and be able to connect you with things that are authentic to who you are Hmm. um so just laying that out there uh being transparent with the consumer and being like yep this is what's going to happen and it's kind of up to you at that point. And another element to this that I think is going to be really crucial moving forward is the decentralized nature. The, the The reason why I see that being a really important aspect is because we're going to have eventually automation and AI basically controlling us. You're going to it have... It already does. It, it already <laughs> yeah. does. And so yeah. the decentralized infrastructure will allow us to have our own control of our data and there's uh, avenues of like data monetization based off of like, you know, like Facebook, they're making money off of a bunch of people off their data for uh, using their platform for ads, yeah. for ad space. Well, if you have decentralized networks with blockchain, then everyone owns their own data and they have the decision whether or not they want the AI or platform to use their data space to send them ads, basically. Mm. Uh, it's a... Uh, a model that utilizes this um, that utilizes this kind of uh, system is called Brave. Oh yeah, Brave. Yeah, Brave browser. Oh yeah, definitely. That guy. I mean, he, the guy that started it. He used to be at Firefox, right? And then got mm. he got deplatformed from his own web browser company, wow. basically, and started Brave. But so it'd be the similar uh, aspect to that. They, um, they have some. But, is, does Brave use um, attention tokens? Basic, it's called basic BAT, attention tokens. Basic attention, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure. I'm not super. I have a bunch of friends that use Brave, and I haven't made this switch yet. But uh, I know, like, I see what you mean with the, um, you know, uh, having a token for your attention. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what things are getting to these days, right? It's like, I, like <clears throat> I was saying with Facebook and Instagram, by default, they end up with so much of people's attention. Uh, and what? How can you shift that attention? I mean, making people aware by having a token issued for attention um and like hey watch this ad and you get these bats like i don't know if that's the uh if that's the right approach but i mean it's certainly interesting to put 
because it's like, hey, time is all you have, right? Mm. You know, in the end. So how do you uh, how do you choose to spend that time? And I like I like how you're thinking of like getting there's a lot there. There are a lot of moving parts that you mentioned. I think that, you know, if you can figure out a way to focus in on one thing, it mm. doesn't necessarily maybe have to be a, a blockchain app or a decentralized app, but even just, you know, what are you seeing? What What does the app look like when you open it? And what's the simplest thing you could offer if you really want to like, you know, develop something and come up with um, something compelling, you know, starting with one really small piece could be, you know, the way to the way to at least start, you know, instead of when you have so many different moving parts, it's it can difficult. be, you know, there's got to, there has to be a priority of like, well, one must be more important mm. than the other. And so where do you start? I think the most important aspect would be the uh, personal assistant AI hmm. being able to uh, build that relationship with it. And that's a scary thing, but I think that's inevitable of what's going to happen in the future. Um, and then having it decentralized. So the AI doesn't control you, but like uh, being somewhat practical, like if we took the brave browser and you had a personal assistant on there that was able to understand you, then when Brave sends you ads or sends you things that are linked to you, or it's just basically sends you stuff so you can earn the token to be able to like consume that content, then it would be sending you stuff that you're, is actually relevant hmm. to you. But ultimately, I think we just need better AI systems uh, for personal assistants. And I don't think we're there yet with uh, our technology. So... I, I think that's where the world's headed to, but I don't know if, I, like a part of me is kind of hesitant to want to pursue this because I don't feel like we have the capabilities of doing something like this yet. But I just see that being as a very crucial thing for our own like individual freedom on a social network platform. I like, I mean, I really <laughs> like the idea of just having, you know, I don't know what, what it would look like, but just the idea of an app where it's like some app that people want to open in those little pieces Instead of downtime. Instead of it being addiction. Well, maybe or maybe it's like a good addiction, like a mm. good, I mean, that's maybe a, an oxymoron, but like a good um, habit, you know, where it's like, oh, I have this little bit of extra time and I even do it to myself. I'm like, wait, why am I opening my email and, mm. and habitually checking my email, hoping that I'll have another email in there, which I probably don't want that email. Why am I not opening even as simple as the notes app? And, mm -hmm. you know, looking at my notes and adjusting my notes and thinking about, you know, reflecting on life, reflecting on my goals, ref you know, journaling, things like that. You know, how how can you know, what's a, an idea that helps shift people the mindset, to yeah. that? And I guess I mean, it's it's interesting to me that, you know, people really like spending time on these apps. And it's really sad to see. I mean, that's this but is do now they really? They don't like it. Right. That's right. the thing is it's like it, it makes them feel terrible. I, mm -hmm. I mean, it from in my opinion, it seems like it makes people really sad and depressed, especially mm -hmm. I can't imagine, um, you know, being like uh, 10 years younger or more. I mean, I guess like 20 years younger, I'm getting old, but, uh, you know, and and having these apps and that's all you've ever known in your life. And it's everybody just putting on this like superficial, you know, mm -hmm this is how great my life is kind of thing and you know never feeling like you can keep up and it's just like oh this person has a million followers and it's just it's um yeah i mean i i would love to figure out ways to kind of break out of that like how can what 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 can you find that people actually feel the mental reward for spending their time on something positive 
it's a pretty abstract, but I think, I mean, it sounds like I think it's like all a, just personal development, like how yeah, you can right. make apps to foster personal development while still being on a network. It's tough though, but people, it's like, yeah, people want the easy way out. They don't want to have to think, you know, so, so it's like tough. One, one thing, thing that I do see though in how our social media is happening and developing now is you're getting like two sets of audience bases. Like uh, you're getting, and the only reason why I'm like, make making these connections is because i'm going through it with um through the brand and seeing social media in a different way because you're approaching it as an entrepreneur but i see two uh, two audience bases where you have the creators and you have the consumers so the creators that are on let's take instagram for example um they're on there using instagram as a tool to be able to get awareness for their brands that they're creating while the consumers on there because they're either trying to escapism or like pleasure seeking or like trying to connect with friends like using it for what it's supposed to be used for um but i think as far as mindset goes those are two totally different approaches like the only reason why i'm opening up instagram is because i'm posting something and i'm trying to build community or network in real life basically i'm trying to build connections and meet new people and using it to my advantage Whereas the consumer is kind of getting crushed by Instagram if they're just going on there and like unconsciously um, consuming content that's making them feel bad or but I mean, same thing happens to me, too. Like I'll go on there and I'll start unconsciously like comparing myself. So it happens to both audience spaces. But I think it's initially um, the creator might be more deliberate in their approach with social media because they've maybe uh taking the time of like had the introspection to know okay this is what my values are and what i want to pursue and now i'm using social media as a tool to get those things that i've thought about wanting whereas the consumer might not have gone through that introspection or they're just using the tool for a different purpose um that's not as deliberate um so again like i'm I'm saying in, in introspection i think ultimately should come first and um uh, uh the generation that's coming uh the, the younger generation that's getting onto social media um there's no infrastructure there to motivate people to be in, more introspective to like understand themselves so i don't know i just think uh we need that right now in this yeah world. i mean i would uh, yeah it sounds like a good mission to get people more introspective mm -hmm. for sure and just thinking about yeah, thinking about things instead of just responding to stimuli. Yeah, it's just like, what do I want? And instead of, because like on an economic model, me as like a business person, I could put out just clickbait and I'm just trying to get attention. And if someone's unconscious to that, like it's so easy to manipulate people to be able to like, oh, this is just feed them what they think that they want mm -hmm. but it, and it's like a, a drug addiction like mm -hmm. you give someone this they they taste it they get hooked and they keep wanting to come back for it but in the long run it's going to be to their detriment and it's not really developing them it's just only making the person who's giving them <laughs> that that drug yeah it's only it's only helping the people at the top yeah. it's not empowering it's enabling well i mean instagram it's like they're just they're trying to sell ads you know they want to make the like you're talking about algorithm it's like they want the best uh, they want to show you the most relevant ads, you know, where you're most likely to 
to buy. And that's why, you know, the cost of Instagram and Facebook ads has gone up so much. Um, and, and, and other less targeted ads and have, um, you know, gone down, but, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I really like the idea of, you know, trying to figure out some sort of more introspective idea for an app. And, uh, it reminds me almost there, I know there's an app where it's like, it, it's like a garden or a trees growing or something. Hmm. And it, and it, um, it only happens when your phone is down and you're not using it. And oh, anytime cool. you pick up your phone, it's like the garden stops growing or something, mm-hmm. you know, so I forget, I forget the name of it or how it even works, but it, it's like that kind of idea where it's like incentivizing you to not be on your phone. Mm-hmm. And I think it's an interesting idea. Um, you know, sometimes it's that those types of, uh, things are detrimental <coughs> though, because I know you sent me some messages, some Instagram DMS and I have a thing set, you know, for like no more than five minutes per day on Instagram. Oh, okay. So what would happen is I wouldn't get them till the next day, mm. uh, because, you know, I'm trying to limit, I'm trying to make myself very aware of, you know, when I'm on Instagram or how much time I'm spending on it every day, but then sometimes it can get in the way of communication and stuff. So I think it's, I mean, it's, there, there are these, um, trade-offs with, uh, with all kinds of, you know, apps and, and developments like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting idea though, to try to get mm-hmm. people to develop more introspective habits. I mean, I, I love that idea. I need to do that more myself, mm-hmm. you know, journaling and, and things like that. You know, I like a good journal app once in a while but at the same time that's kind of uh pretty simple on the surface and it's interesting you've kind of got some ideas of ways to uh expand on that i think we just need a good enough reward to be pursuing personal development the reward is yourself right after it is is, (laughs) the new you yeah is there a way to pay people essentially i guess right uh to be personally developing or introspective yeah pay their future selves the only yeah i guess it is yeah well i mean like vision kind of you know like the secret and all of that where it's like oh envision what you want in the future i mean there's i think there's a lot of value in that obviously Mm -hmm. the secret it's kind of like you know okay that's way out there but i like it yeah sure (laughs) i haven't read it but i've heard well i mean (laughs) there's like i've seen clips of the you know documentary or whatever Mm -hmm. uh and but just the idea of, you know, picturing what you want or, you know, deciding, oh, this is what I really want in my life. Um, I think that can be really motivational and a lot of people don't even do it. So that almost seems like an avenue of like if even just knowing like, oh, I want, you know, to achieve this thing in, you know, five years from now. Well, then even if you don't get to that, maybe you get halfway there. Um, so, I mean, it's, that's, I think that that could be a a very motivational thing is kind of like, you know, Hey, what's your vision for 10 years from now? I mean, this probably all exists. There are probably apps that do this, but, um, you know, we don't know about them. So maybe no one's really cracked the, um, you know, cracked the, uh, whatever the analogy I'm trying to think of. Cracked the code. Cracked the code. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Right. Um, but I do see a lot of promise in uh, the data monetization of blockchain, where like Brave, for instance, that browser being able to reward you when you want to be, or it it does something where it empowers the user um, to have control over their data. So then they have the option to choose whether or not they want ads sent to them. And if they do choose, then they can get rewarded for watching those ads. Uh, I just, 
I don't know. I, 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 I really like that idea and I see a lot of promise in it. But the downside is, is that I don't know how sustainable that is or if it's going to create a network where you're able to make enough money where it's actually like somewhat impactful from the data usage that you're doing. Yeah, I don't really know enough about um, about BAT and how that whole system works with Brave um, to know really about, you know, much about it. Hmm. Okay, well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to do some more research, a lot more research into it and see what cool. comes of it. Um, cool. Definitely want to reach out to you if I do have a set plan of attack to maybe we could get together and I always I like talking about that stuff especially you know incentives in app design and um you know I don't I I now you talking about this makes me want to look into Mm -hmm. brave and BAT more um you know advertising internet advertising is a really kind of interesting thing you know we went from the world of consumer packaged goods companies where tv advertising and billboards was the way to go because it was like okay we're going to make this mass market product you know wonder bread whatever for everybody in the 60s you know like okay we're going to put it on you know all these ads and and um you know tv ads uh and and billboards and whatever to to get that you know repeat recognition of it and now someone's in the grocery store and buys it you know that's like a mass cpg um Mm -hmm. you know approach that now we're shifted to more of these like uh the instagram style ads where it's you know more targeted direct to consumer brands where they're you know seeking out the people who want the really good kitchen knives you know or like a super nice belt like a fancy expensive belt and it's it's really shifting how advertising is working then you throw in these things of like people not being able to be tracked across sites or across apps and it's like the whole thing is just being flipped on its head and then some people are saying well that's anti-competitive for for google and apple to get rid of these tracking things because then only they can do the tracking and it's Mm -hmm. like well yeah maybe that's the case but it's interesting because it is this is all kind of up in the air right now um you know we're seeing people being really influenced by all these algorithms and um you know it sounds like uh it's an interesting area to think about for sure yeah i mean economically speaking um like how you're making the comparison of the Wonder Bread to things that are more direct consumer. I, I feel like we're going through this shift, economically speaking, where it's more trying to create a marketplace that is about self-empowerment and personal development. And I just think that that's this idea that I'm pitching to you would be the next step to that, to get to like a higher level hmm. in self-empowerment. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting idea, too, of like, if, I mean, I, I you, the way Instagram works, you know, sometimes it'll recommend a product. And I'm like, oh, that's really cool. Like, that's yeah. something I actually really want. And, you know, where how can we move more in that direction? Because, you know, there are certain things where it's like I want to buy something uh, like I want to buy a new pair of sunglasses and I don't want to really look around that mm-hmm. hard. But I want to find like the perfect pair of sunglasses for me that are like super well made that I can, you know, it's like on reddit uh buy it for life you know it's like if you want to buy something with a super high quality it's going to last you a long time you can go on there and you know find out what it is or what different options are but you know that i i I think that could be a really interesting you know like when you're talking about uh buying things or you know getting ads for things that are really relevant to you it's Mm -hmm. like you know hopefully it also can move in the direction of higher 
quality and like more sustainably produced long-term things rather than like, you know, the more disposable, like fast fashion, quick, um, you know, like buy this thing and it, and it's like a, you know, quick short kind term. of thing. Yeah. Just like something that, you know, you don't get a lot of use out of, I guess. Mm. I don't know. I'm being pretty abstract about it, but uh, I'm trying to think. Of well, there is example. something uh, as far as like behavior change goes, there's like, let's take smoking for instance, like it's easier to get that quick hit from a cigarette and like uh, fix that, uh, that craving that you're having if you're addicted to cigarettes than it is to um, see the long-term health benefits that you mm-hmm. would be if you just stopped altogether. Mm-hmm. But those long-term health benefits or the the quick short-term pleasure ends up outweighing more so than not uh, the <laughs> long-term health benefits. And that's why it's so hard to quit cigarettes. Sure. Or Instagram. Or, <laughs> or, any, or Instagram. Or yeah. think about the vision for where you want your life instead of just staying on, staying on the treadmill mm-hmm. and, you know. Yeah. And just going with whatever comes. So yeah. the, the way around that I see is like how can you uh, give people that short-term hit Mm-hmm. while also incentivizing long-term like a positive fit yeah yeah, yeah. some kind yeah like uh if you could somehow think about this now this is interesting of like how yeah know, I've, I've thought about the idea of like what's an app like even just the most abstract way what's an app that people would want to open all the time that's mm-hmm. not you know facebook or instagram that would build some kind of positive habit but it sounds like the introspection is like mm-hmm. that's a good um a good avenue yeah, like imagine if you could reward someone every time they go to work out. Like, yeah, it's bettering them, but they don't see those benefits until long term. Right, later and there on. have been there have been. I mean, I forget the name, like Sweatcoin, and like all these different apps that you know feed into that and give you some kind of mm. prize based on that. But then it's like easily gameable, and so it's yeah. interesting, you know, what with it, the health tracking, what like you could incentives? put on your cat and have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like the health. I mean, the health tracking stuff is so interesting to me. And I think that's going to be a a really interesting area going forward. I mean, with different being able to do different types of blood tests in real time. And like I wear a continuous glucose monitor, Mm -hmm. but I'm not diabetic. It's like normally a prescription device for diabetics. But it's like it's so crazy to have that feedback now of like Mm -hmm. seeing what my glucose level is in real time and, you know, knowing how well I'm doing as far as just like avoiding like a lot of sugar and like having these crazy sugar crashes or getting better sleep. Mm-hmm. And it'll be great, you know, when you can monitor things like, um, well, I don't know what can really be monitored in real time next. I mean, glucose, there's a huge market for it, but, um, you know, other types of blood tests, you know, have varying degrees of work involved, Sorry. obviously. Oops. Oh, I should have put it on <laughs> do not disturb. Uh, but anyway, that's um, it's something I'm really interested in seeing too. Is how can the the biofeedback of it all be incorporated into something you know making you more introspective? Like I've become super aware now of my sleep. I track mm. my sleep really carefully. Like um, you know, blood oxygen level, uh, heart rate variability, heart rate, um, you know, uh, blood glucose level, like you know, time spent in our, in REM sleep. And, you know, when you put all that together That's all from the glucose monitor, no, those are from different devices. Oh, okay. Like I wear an Apple watch that has the blood oxygen sensor. I wear something called an aura ring, which is, um, measures HRV and heart rate, skin temperature. Um, and then just like it has a, an accelerometer in it to just measure movement. Um, but like mashing that all up together, mm-hmm. it's really interesting to see like, wow, you know, having that information about a night uh, like seeing the difference between oh i ate a bunch of food before bed 
and then went to sleep and it's like oh my heart rate was high all night my blood glucose level was bouncing up and down mm. and and you know you can feel it the next day but now it's nice to know oh well you know i can see that you know if everything was flat like blood glucose was flat my heart rate was low my i wake up with a high hrv my skin temperature was low you know not very high it's like oh now i kind of know that i'm healthier but it helps build that momentum of okay now i'm going to you know try to live the next day better um, mm. and so i think that that'll be you know those types of mechanisms might be a way to help people get motivated, I guess, you know, I mean, the, the, the rings, like on an Apple watch, there are like these three activity rings that it encourages you to close them every day by, you know, standing, exercising, and just kind of moving. But, um, you know, it's, it seems to be very good at habit building for people like who they'll lose a bunch of weight because of it, just because they want to fill the stupid rings, but like, mm. they're not stupid rings. You get up going on a streak and you're like, Oh, I can't break my you know, six day streak now, or my people get year long streaks of, of doing it every day. Mm. So I think in that, you know, yeah, you could put it on your dog, but like, you know, you're only hurting yourself then. That's the thing too. Like if you add money into the equation, then it's just more, um, easily like, uh, people just tamper with it or yeah, it it's a weird incentive. people. Like, to... have you seen the billboard out here for donate plasma and get $700 mm. a month? And it's kind of like CSL. I don't know. It's, I mean, I just saw it. I saw it when I was waiting outside of the building oh, here cool. and it's like I've seen it around town and it's kind of interesting to me because it's like, well, yeah, people do need plasma, but it's an interesting incentive to, um, you know, pay people for their plasma. And like, where does that end? Where, you know, mm -hmm. you know, in other countries, people sell their kidneys, you know, like you only need one kidney to really live. So should you be able to sell your kidney? Um, and you, Do you know, think it's like a too powerful of an incentive? I don't know. I just think it's kind of an interesting, it's a kind of a weird and interesting incentive. Um, I, I don't know that it's necessarily too powerful, but it's just an interesting thing to me. It's like, Oh, you're paying someone for like, you know, this doing good bodily, <laughs> like the stuff your body produces or like I've given blood before, but like, that's more just cause I'm like, Oh, this is something I can do to help people. It's not like I'm getting paid to, I think they mm -hmm. give you like, well, they give you snacks afterwards, yeah. <laughs> but like, I don't know what else, but, um, but it's just interesting to me to see that. And it's like thinking about, um, you know, some of those monetary incentives when it comes to like, you know, well, I don't know. I, incentives are just fascinating to me in mm -hmm. general, but I but saw that billboard world. and that's... I was thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, ethically, I don't know where it lies, like how I feel about it, but in terms of like trying to motivate people like some people they that's what might actually motivate them to mm -hmm. get up and go for a run <laughs> is yeah. to just pay them <laughs> i guess and yeah. it's like universal value uh like just money money is a universal value what as opposed to like every time you get up i'm gonna give you a granola bar well what if mm -hmm. you don't like a granola bar you know yeah, right yeah everyone can use money <laughs> sure yeah I don't know, just interesting idea. Yeah. Uh, who knows what'll come of it. Okay. Uh, but I'll keep thinking about it. And uh would that be something you would uh be able to do? I mean, I think it would be you, it would need to be a more like fully formed idea, like what's the scope of it, you know, starting really simple and then kind of building out from mm. there. I mean the whole decentralized aspect adds a lot of complexity and would make it into um, you know, something 
kind of totally different and a lot more complicated where, you know, if you're trying to just start off with like, what's the basic user interface, like that mm. could be that, you know, that's like one way to start is just like, okay, you know, creating the user interface and making something that's interactive, <clears throat> even if it's not really connected to anything, you know, so that's do you have any, uh, kind of a starting point. Do you have any background in AI no. or like machine learning kind of no. stuff? Okay. Yeah, I haven't mm. done that. Would, would that be it. something you'd want to learn? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I probably not at this <laughs> point. I don't know. I'm a little interested in it, but without having a specific application of it, I think it's, uh, I don't, I haven't really looked into it. You know, a lot of my software development I've done, it's been like, uh, learning enough to build something that I want to build rather than like oh i'm gonna learn about this new area and then apply it to something mm. that makes sense cool well all right how long have we been going here yeah i mean it's, it's been uh, a long time second part's been 50 minutes oh wow I think the last okay. one was about an hour oh okay cool so, yeah let's wrap it up all right sounds Cut. good that's it <laughs> we're done <laughs> cool thanks so there you have it thanks again for tuning in to bindalism a philosophy to self-sufficient lifestyle be sure to explore other episodes of Bindalism on our Spotify and Apple podcast. You can find more Boho Hobo stuff on Instagram and Twitter at Boho underscore Hobo underscore, as well as on our Facebook page at Boho Hobo Lifestyle. It'd also be dope if you could subscribe to our YouTube channel as well. Our YouTube channel has more episodes from Bindalism in video form, along with other random shenanigans that we're up to. We're constantly filming new experiences, so it's one way you guys can stay up to date with us in our journey. So yeah, I guess that's it for now. Until next time, peace.